2020 trail runners welcome to the next decade this is the first recording of this decade of the Coopcast, and i really thought that to kick the decade off in style i would do a podcast on one of the most requested topics that i get on social media twitter and instagram and that is can you become a better ultra runner through fat adaptation or optimized fat metabolism. And I thought, no, who else but to talk about this than my good friend, Jeff Browning, uh, who is a proponent of this style of nutrition. Uh, He's been doing it for the last few years and he's found a lot of success with it. There's absolutely no doubt about that. At the ripe young age of 48, Jeff is absolutely crushing it out on the trails. He had a tremendous 2019 and has had a lot of success over the last few years. And he attributes much of that success to this new diet uh, process that um, that he's really undertaken where he limits the amount of carbohydrates that, that he takes in to around 30% or so, or even less. And because of that is able to tap into more of his fat reserves and utilize fat as a source of energy. I do not share the same opinions as Jeff. And we have gone back and forth on social media about this. And that comes definitely kind of comes out in the podcast. But despite all of that, Jeff and I, we really like each other as people. We see each other at races, we hang out, we have a lot of mutual respect for one another, both just personally and also professionally as, uh, as coaches. And so I thought, who better to bring on the podcast than, than Jeff? And so we did, we, we hucked it around, we kicked around this topic of optimized fat metabolism, and we did so in a way that is really practitioner to practitioner based or coach to coach based. We tried not to get too involved in batting around different research studies, and this study said this, and this meta-analysis did that, because all too often those types of conversations, they just get too much in the weeds. In addition to that, to, to really have those conversations, you have to have two really true domain experts that do nothing but research science for for a living. So we tried to keep it at a very high practical level that all athletes can can readily identify from and and just to get to think about, is this a correct strategy that you want to utilize or not? And I think the proof is kind of going to ultimately lie in the pudding with athletes year after year after year who undertake these types of strategies or stick with the traditional higher carbohydrates uh, types of strategies. So you guys have a listen. I had a lot of fun with this conversation. It's a long one. It's about two and a half hours. Buckle in, get your long run ready because yeah, this is the longest coop cast to date. We definitely set a record on this one. Uh, we had fun with it. You guys, without any further ado, here's my conversation about optimized fat metabolism with Jeff Browning. athletics in general are a, is a creative endeavor, right? Oh man. Well, ultra running specifically is a creative endeavor. You yeah. know, I mean, we, you, you've, you've been running ultra marathons for long enough to realize that from a training perspective, a, a lot of the, the, the history behind ultra marathon training, particularly like in the nineties and the early two thousands is just winging it. 
Yeah, you totally. Know, you know, I heard it the, was winging it when I got into it. Yeah. You know, in 2001. Yeah. And it was, you would talk to somebody, oh, hey, what'd you do to train for Western States? And then you talk to another, another person and you say, okay, what'd you do to train for hard rock? And then somehow the person on the other end of it that was trying to figure it out had this like magic alchemy where they would come up with their own like training protocol based on all of these like little anecdotal reports that they would get. And this is way before, you know, we had Twitter and Strava and things like that. It was back in the, the ultra listserv days where a yeah, lot of this absolutely. information was disseminated. <laughs> I got a lot of my information in the early days from run100s.com. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, cause he had so many links to like training blogs, you know, oh. like people had like done right write-ups on stuff. But, but, it, but in a lot of ways that style in ultra running of getting information related to training and diet and nutrition still kind of hangs around. And the, totally. and, and the reason it hangs around is just because in the research, it's not studied as much because it's a hard thing to study and the population of people who do this just isn't that big. So getting like actual research subjects is quite challenging. So there's still like this remnants even today in 2020, right? We're in the first month of 2020 now. There's still these remnants of having to piece together what are, what are in, in, in large part anecdotes to come up with valid training strategies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think. And, and also it's just it, it's, it's the style of training we're doing, right? We're in the mountains. Like you can't put that in a lab. Yeah, totally. I'm sorry, but you're never going to be able to put that fully in a lab. That that scenario where you got humidity and altitude and, you know, wildlife and <laughs> and rockfall and you know, whatever, you know, there's a muddy conditions, snow, it depends. You could go run one trail, you know, a hundred times in one year and you would get a hundred different conditions. Well, and that was one of the frustrating things about when I started transitioning coaching trail and ultra runners from coaching road runners, triathletes, and cyclists is we had this, and you know, this is a cyclist, right? We had this like really, you know, really pure way of measuring intensity, which is the power meter on a bike. And the equivalent to that in the road running world would be pace. And we could take that and we could make a lot of sense out of the training data itself. Is the athlete getting better or worse or the same? But you move that onto the trails and it just gets really, <laughs> it gets super fuzzy. Like it's hard to do. Like we try to it's have It's really tools. hard to do. It's intuitive almost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. a lot of communication back and forth with the athlete and hopefully they're being honest with you. Well, yeah. So that, that actually, I actually think that trail and ultra running coaches, they, they have to accentuate the art of coaching more than the science because the data yeah. that they're getting is just fuzzier. That's the best way yeah, you can describe it. I totally it. agree with that. That's such a good point. And I haven't heard that stated in that, in that way before, yeah. but it, that is so true. Well, in a little bit of this, we can kind of transition into how you got into optimized fat metabolism because the parallels are really similar where you were trying to solve a problem for you, right? Your own yes. N of one. And there was not just like an ultra running, there's not a lot of information out there at the time. And you took what you had, you took the kind of the tools at your disposal and you said, here, here, here's how I'm going to solve this really specific problem that I, that, that I have. And so it's a little bit of a lead in. Why don't you just like take us through that story specifically of how, this started intriguing you and how yeah. you started getting into optimized fat metabolism. Yeah, more. I, I mean, it wasn't a, a, a conscious choice originally. It was more like I was forced <laughs> into yeah. this pathway because I was having some 
after a couple of trips to uh, South America and raced at Ultra Fjord in 2015, and um, I had some GI issues with like some can I went to a naturopath and basically it was kind of diagnosed as um, uh, candida overgrowth in my GI tract. Right. I was having some major like breakouts, rashes, itches, itching on my inside, my gut, like on the inside, like I had an alien, you know, on the inside. <laughs> and it was not fun. I had like seven major flare ups in 2015. And I was just not and I was getting to the point where like post race, I had a, I, I remember telling my wife she likes to tell this story because I remember saying, I don't know how much longer I can do these hundred things because they are just they are killing me. Like, I mean, just like I was swollen. I had major inflammation, um, you know, and it just wasn't like, I just didn't look good, man. For like a week or two afterwards. And, um, I was pretty beat up and, and just that whole candida issue. I was desperate. I mean, I got to that, I got to that like low, low, like where you're just like in the lowest in an ultra, you're just like, I think I should just quit, you know? Um, but I just, I being the geeky like reader that I am, I, I just wouldn't accept that, you know, that it, I don't know whether it's that ultra spirit where you're just like, you've been taught to like push through it, figure it out. Right. So, or you quit, right. You either push through it and figure it out or you quit. Yeah. Right. So I, I basically spent about probably 30 hours, eight to midnight every night for a week after I was done graphic design during the week. And I just started researching anti-candida diets. And I started coming across forums and blogs about paleo primal blueprint, um, those kind of diets and said, you need to starve the, starve the sugar, right? It feeds on sugar, yeast, you know, candida is yeast. It feeds on sugar. I broke it down to the simplest terms, like you would with a, with an athlete and you go, okay, all right, I need to starve this thing of sugar. And then I got hold of, I, I came across Vespa's website. I knew nothing about them. I never used the product at that time. You know, I am sponsored by him now. So full disclosure, but I, I came across, he had, Peter had a bunch of really, really good information on OFM on just optimizing fat metabolism, kind of this ancestral background. And that's where I really started digging into it. And I, then I called Zach bitter cause he was a friend. And I said, dude, what do I do? Like I'm having this issue and I want to try to do this. And I knew he did it. And, and he just gave me some tips and mainly for like long runs. Like, what do I eat on long runs? You know, <laughs> now that I'm trying to starve this thing of sugar and he kind of gave me some ideas. Um, but at the end of the day, Peter and, and Peter Defty at Vespa and, and Zach Bitter really helped me kind of, they kind of slingshot, gave me a slingshot push into like kind of what, what OFM was and how to kind of, how kind of use it. And then I just started like, I was all in once I kind of realized there might be a performance benefit to it. Right. From a recovery perspective and from maybe even like, maybe even like a running perspective, even that, and we were still at that time, we were still like, didn't really know much. Right. We've, yeah. we've learned a lot about fat science in five years, right. Four years I've been doing it. Right. There's a lot more people doing it. A lot of people tinkering a lot of people making mistakes. I would you know, agree with success. That. I would agree. Yeah. That. yeah. Like we're all over the place, right. We're throwing darts on a dartboard and, and that's, what's kind of cool. It's kind of emerging still, right. We don't fully understand it. And so that's where I kind of came to it from. Like I just needed to 
fix something. But you, and then I saw the performance and I got a hold of that. Okay. So that's kind of what I wanted to get out of the whole storyline is that initially you were looking at this to solve a medical condition. Exactly. And, and, and there are a lot of people out there and I'll actually include myself in that cohort of people who try to solve some bizarre medical condition with a low carbohydrate, high fat type of diet, the transition for you from trying to solve that medical condition to, Hey, I'm still an elite ultra runner. It might actually help my performance. That's what I really want to focus on and, 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 and dive a little bit more into. So why don't we start out by summarizing the key advantages as you see it for that style of nutrition program. And why don't we just back up a little bit? You can yep. give us like an umbrella statement of, of, of optimized fat metabolism and then transition that statement into what are the key advantages as you see them? Well, okay. I want to throw a caveat out there that it's not a keto protocol. You're not a keto athlete. OFM is not a keto at you're not a keto. So I don't, I want to make sure that everyone understands that upfront. We are not like, we are not carbohydrates fully have a place in training and in, and in recovery and there, there's a place for it. So what it does, I, I guess the best way to put it in an umbrella statement is um, one, you're, you're the simplest is you're trying to push your crossover point, right? From when you, Right. You're, you're, when you're in your low aerobic zones, you're burning car, you're burning fat, primarily fat. And as you get more intense and more intense, that crossover, you get to a point where you're burning carbohydrate, you start to cross over and burn mainly carbohydrates, that 50, 50, once you get 50, 50% fat, 50% carbohydrate, that's your crossover point. So what we're trying to do with OFM and what we're seeing is with athletes I've coached and some of the people in the testing that we're starting to see, right. We're still looking at small data sets, right? Right. We said it's an emerging science. So what we're seeing is crossover points get pushed, which is, that's what I'm interested in is that crossover point, right? Cause in, in ultra running, especially in endurance sports, it's about running at the highest aerobic capacity you can for the longest period of time without going too far. Now you can surge into more intense zones, but you still have to come back and recover, right? Like you look at like, say Western States, right? You have to like you have to push hard if you're in the top 10, run acing for the top 10. There's all these surges in the last 50K, like tons of surges and moves to be in that zone. And so I, that's what I'm interested in is that crossover point and pushing that out. And I think that's what, the, what I'm seeing right now in my own experiences and what I've seen in the testing we've done is that it really pushes crossover point shifts it pretty majorly. So like, you know, what we see in the science right now is if we look in the, in the past, right, we kind of generally can agree. I'm sure you'll agree with this, that 50 to 65% of VO2 max is where most athletes are going to hit their crossover point. That's a, that's a pretty accurate statement. Trained athletes will, pu will push it yes, further yeah, to the good. right. Thank you for and that's perfect. And that's, that's been well demonstrated across a lot of endurance athletes that as you just endurance train, you push this crossover point, which is the point at which you are burning equal amounts of carbohydrate and fat to fuel your exercise. You push that to a higher and higher absolute and relative intensity. Training alone does that 
to a large extent. And I think where you're coming at it from is that the OFM side of it pushes it even further. It pushes even further. And what we're doing is using everyday lifestyle diet to push that number. Okay. So that's context. Number one, your crossover point is at a higher relative and absolute intensity. Yeah, which is very beneficial for ultra okay. running, especially. Okay. Right. The other, the other side benefits of OFM that I see that are really, really big for me that I noticed initially was recovery. So less oxidative stress, right? So to the metabolic system, and I think part of that's probably because, and this is just a quick, like when you burn, right? For every, for every unit of oxygen you can, so so let's say you're burning mainly glucose for your, or carbohydrate for your fuel source, right? That, that ratio is approximately a one-to-one ratio of every unit of oxygen you consume. You're, you're have about a equal unit of CO2, right? Product coming out. Does That's that correct. Make, yep. that, that, you agree with that, right? Yep. One-to-one ratio. Yep. So what we're seeing in like fat is if you're burning primarily fat as your fuel source, then it's a one to 0.75 ratio, right? Unit one unit of oxygen to 0.75 of CO2. So the theory, now this isn't, we don't have science. We don't have any like hardcore studies to really prove this yet. But the, the theory is that we're doing less oxidative stress because we're not kicking out as much CO2. Okay. We're going to, we're going to come back and talk about that because there's a lot of exercise testing that revolves around the respiratory exchange ratio, which you were <laughs> yeah, just we mentioning. Were, I, which yes. is, which is, which I want to get into that because okay. I think that's an interesting one because there is a, there is a cost to burning fat. Yeah. Okay. So we're going right. to, we're going to come back and talk about that. But the second point that we're, we're trying to bring to light is, is that there's some sort of recovery enhancement enhancement from yes. optimized fat metabolism. And your, your theory is, and this is where it gets really muddy is that recovery enhancement has to do with the amount of carbon dioxide that is That's produced think, as a right? as a byproduct this is a of metabolism. It's a theory. Theory. Okay. Cause it's we're gonna theory. we're gonna talk about that theory in a little bit. But let's keep let's keep going. So we've got the crossover points better. Yeah. You're burning more fat at a higher intensity. Your recovery is better. Keep going. I don't know how many bullet points you want to go through. Let's try to keep them less than 10. Yeah, let's let's keep <laughs> let's keep it. Uh let me give you, let's see, what's another good one? Pick, pick, um, pick one more. We'll talk about those three. We could fill the rest of the uh, time. The other is GI stress. I okay. think for ultra running specifically, let's get into specific. I think it's kind of cool to tie it into real world, right? Like what athletes are experiencing. And this is what I am. Ex- I'm sure you're dealing with it too, with your, your athletes. I'm dealing with my athletes. I have people come to me that just, you know, they're having major GI stress and, and ultras. And that is a, this one's a huge one because if you can burn f- onboard fat, if you can teach your body to burn at a deeper rate per minute of onboard fat, you're going to have to consume less carbohydrate during the event. That's the most important piece. Okay. It, I would say, because that's so real world. Yep. Totally, totally agree. GI distress is a huge issue with huge. ultra runners. I mean, you look at all the survey data, they're all, it's all coming up to the number one or number two issue that uh, ultra runners and in particular 100 mile races or 100 mile runners uh, experience during, uh, during their particular race. So I completely agree that if we can solve the GI issue, it would be a huge advantage to all ultra runners. 
so, and that's where I say this this OFM protocol is a tool for people that are experiencing that. That's just a, they could try all kinds of things. I, I'm not saying it's the only way, but I'm saying it is a way to help solve that issue. Okay, so let, let's keep it at three because otherwise we'll, three. We'll, we'll, we'll have a seven hour like podcast it. and people will turn it tur- turn off we, after the and second I will hour. We'll talk for seven hours too. So. <laughs> well, we can have part two and part three and part four, but we're gonna we're gonna keep the three main advantages as improving the crossover point improving some aspect of recovery that's related to carbon dioxide production and then alleviating the gastrointestinal distress. Those in theory are going to be the, that's going to be our framework to talk about the advantages of, of OFM. We're going to come back to those. Let's get kind of, kind of down to brass tacks of how you do it. And then you can probably bleed that into a little bit of how you have your athletes do this as well. Yeah, it's all kind of one thing because I did the same thing I do my athlete the way I do it with my athletes. So I'll just talk about kind of a quick kind of overview if that if that works of like totally. how you would approach doing it. Yep. Totally. Um, I think the biggest thing is, and this is where the, where we got to this. Like when I made the disclaimer, no. I'm not a keto athlete. <laughs> um, I don't. I like feel that. that I, I feel don't like that being put in a box. I, I feel <laughs> that the keto community does themselves a disservice because they're just so incredibly vocal whenever anything comes out that they just turn everybody off. It's a weird. Well, this is what happens with any fad diet, right? We have, we have, we have vegetarians and vegans. We have keto, we have carnivore now, like we have everybody and everybody gets in this box and say, this is the only way I like, uh, Tony Horton from, P90X beat body, right? The famous kind of yeah, online yeah, workouts. Yeah. Like one of his, my favorite quotes from him was I'm a flexitarian. Yeah, <laughs> <I'm right>. like, <laughs> you know, like you, you get more data and you find out new things and you try it and it might work for you. And so you might incorporate that little piece into your lifestyle. So like, that's the way I am. I'm, I'm constantly tinkering. And, and so let's get, let's stick to OFM though. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, number one is you have to, do a keto reset phase. So the keto people are going to love me right here. But let's say, wait a minute. You just said you were a keto person, but all of a sudden not, you're you getting into it as a tool. Okay. You, it's as a tool. It's like anything. You might use vegetarianism as a tool. You might use carnivore as a tool. You might use keto as a tool. That's what I have to put out there. That <laughs> it's these fad diets are the only reason that they work in my opinion is that because it's from our ancestral eating days when we ate seasonally right? When we ate seasonally, we, we sometimes were forced to only eat vegetables. Sometimes we were forced to only eat meat and fat, right? And sometimes we eat a mixture of the two, right? So we're more keto. So like there's a combo of like throughout our history as humans on this planet that we've eaten way, like specific macros depending on what was available to us. And I think that's what we're really taking this, these different diets and using them as a tool. I like to look at them as like, I like to tell my athletes, it's like a crescent wrench. Okay. A crescent wrench is a great tool for like loosening a pipe, right? A pipe fitting, but it's a horrible tool for hammering in a nail. So, Right. That's a hilarious analogy. There's times when you're going to get that tool out of your toolbox and use it. And there are other times you're going to store it in your toolbox and you might not use it for six months. Okay. We're going to, we'll, we'll talk about the validity of the tool a little bit, but suffice to say, I'm not in complete agreement with you that the reason 
that all of these diets work has to do with some sort of ancestral lineage. I think, hold on, hold on. I gave you yeah. your piece. You can give me my piece. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I, go for your piece. I think the real reason why, and the data actually illuminates this quite well. The real reason why all of these diets quote unquote work is they're all just a different variation of caloric restriction. That's all it is. And it, and it induces a negative energy balance. People lose weight and people see the health benefits from losing weight. Now that broadens the scope of people outside the athletic population. But when we're talking about the fad diets, which apply to everybody, not just the athletes. Yeah, totally. That's why, all, that's why the zone diet worked and the South Beach diet worked and the Ornish diet worked and, you know, whatever else okay, you can kind I, of throw I, out I, there. I'll, okay, I'll, let's, let's. I can agree with you on that piece. I think there's, some, there's, some valid, there's a validity to that point for sure. Okay, let's get absolutely. Let's keep going down brass tacks. So keto yeah, reset so is your first part of it. Let's yeah, get get into yeah, that a little bit. Month, and like, and it's not long term. It's it's a month. It what you have to do is you have to like restrict carbohydrate enough so you can start making this ship shift to tap into a deeper rate of fat. It's it's making your body start to say, I've got to start producing ketones. I need to start learning to burn fat at a higher rate. That's what you're teaching your body to do in that first. And it's only what we know is like from like all the, all the research that Dr. Volick and Dr. Finney have done, which are probably the two most published on fat metabolism stuff, right? Um, those two guys. Like one thing we can agree on with their research is that they – it takes about really three weeks to really open that pathway up to burn onboard fat at a high rate by restricting carbohydrate. So that's, that's, that's phase one. Okay. Before you go on, what's the, like, we, we got to calibrate the amount of carbohydrate that you're yeah, yeah, inducing good. for good. each of these, just cause I think people kind of get lost in the vocabulary of keto low high. They really don't know what it is. So what, what's the carbohydrate level during the keto reset phase? The, kind of the traditional around 50 grams okay, there or you go. less. That, that's all, day. that's all, that's all. I think yeah. that's, that's the correct context. So 50 grams, two gels worth of carbohydrates, yeah, exactly. right? Just to, just to make the equivalent in everybody's head. Maybe it's yep. two and a half bananas or something like that. If we want to think about a real food product, but yep. that's the total amount of carbohydrate that you're eating throughout an entire day during. The simplest way to look at it is two meals with vegetables only and yeah. meat. Yeah. Meat and fat for everything else. Right. Hey, so I told you I was going to do this before this podcast. So for breakfast, I really did have eggs and butter. Yeah, um, buddy. Me too. <laughs> was, I, know, I knew you were going to. I wanted to get in the spirit of things, Jeff. But yeah, right, I but, but I, I have to admit to you, I feel bad. I cheated and I put like four cups of spinach and like maybe three quarters of cups, uh, three quarters of a cup of salsa on top. And I probably got like 25 or 28 grams of carbs out of that. So I've, I've already kind of like blown my day since I'm like halfway through it. <laughs> <laughs> it oh, let me tell you this. The keto reset is a hard, it's hard. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. It, you, you have what I have to, I have to like prepare my athletes kind of mentally for that four <laughs> weeks. It's like, it's like, you're going to feel low, especially the first two weeks. You, we're going to back off on long runs to like two hours, you know, like it's going to be, it's like no intensity. It, it's be, it's best for the off season, right? Low intensity, low volume overall for the whole, like what they look at compared to say the rest of the year. And and that's ideal, right? I did it during a high intensity of training for hurt 100, but I was desperate. 
Um, and it was in a desperate phase of my life. <laughs> and you probably um, wouldn't do that again, would you? No, I wouldn't do it again. I would take it during the off season and enjoy, and, and like just really embrace it. But <laughs> but I would say that like that that's the first phase. That one's that one's more like learning to like what it is to eat keto. Like okay. so then you, after four weeks, you know how to do it, right? So if you need to use it, and after that, I, I want to make sure this is very clear. After that four weeks, you don't we don't do keto very often. It's like maybe one day, maybe a reset. If you went to hall the, the holidays and ate a bunch of food and you gained four pounds and you're like, come back from the holidays going, Oh my God, I drank too much. I ate too much. I need to do a reset. And then you might do a week reset, right? Or a two week reset or a three day week reset, but you're not going to go back to four weeks unless you completely fell off the wagon and went high carb for a long period of time again but your body has made that shift. And once it's made that shift, it knows that metabolic set. So it goes, okay, I know that. And I, I just need some carbohydrate restriction to get me reset again. Okay. okay? So st step one is the keto reset for four weeks. Yep. Okay. That's step one. Okay. St step two is what we call it kind of the, uh, that let me kind of give you like a, I would say like what we call at it's, it's about six weeks. What I call the adaptation phase An adaptation phase is like, okay, we're still relatively still restricting carbohydrates a little bit. To right? what? To what? what so th at this point we shift to more like we're still restricting to about no more than maybe uh, 150 grams a day. Okay. But we're starting to use them, and you're gonna love this is your favorite term, Jason. <laughs> is strategic carbohydrates. Oh god. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, let me let me explain that though. Yeah, because yeah. people throw that around a lot. And I wanna I wanna understand, I wanna put it in context, okay? We've restricted for four weeks, right? So now we, you felt you now you're starting to have by the end of four weeks, you're usually having stable energy, you're producing ketones. Now your fat metabolism is kicked up. Your your body knows how to burn on board fat. But we do still have about eight, it takes about eight to twelve weeks to really, really get fat adapted. So it's it's a it's a patient game, right? You got to be patient with it. And so then we continue to restrict carbohydrates, but then we start thinking about it in the context of effort and volume. So a rest day would be more lower carb day, like be more keto day, like 50, 60 grams of carbohydrates. Now this isn't a hard fast. You, you don't have to stick to that. Oh my God, did I, ha did I have 50 grams of carbs? This is where I start to talk, talk to people. Don't get carb phobic. You don't want to get carb phobic because after four weeks of restricting, you start, you're like reading labels and you start getting a little like mental about it. And you don't want to stay there. You, you, at this point, you're saying, okay, I know how to intuitively eat, you know, keto, but I'm not keto. I'm going to start bringing in carbohydrates. And that's when I say, okay, now we start bringing in fruit, sweet potatoes, red potatoes, kind of like what we, that, that Nutrivore paleo primal blueprint food list right? We're sticking still to that food list because those carbohydrates have fiber in them. Those carbohydrates are, don't jack your blood sugar up a ton, especially if you have them with some fat, like if you're having potato with some butter, you know, you're not going to jack your insulin up. We're, so we're still trying to keep insulin stable. That's the key here. If you keep insulin stable, you can tap into onboard fat. But so, still, but still, I know you're not trying to get people carb phobic. That's still really low carbohydrate. 
absolutely. 100 yes. to 100 grams of carbohydrate is going to be for somebody who has a 3,000 calorie diet, that's going to be 20%, maybe less of their yeah. total nutrient intake. Total amount of calories is going to co come from carbohydrates. Yeah. That's still and, and during, a really low amount. But during this time, we start taking training back up at the same time. So I have them start timing carbohydrate usage around those, especially when glucose uptake is good, like post-workout. So they come after the workout and they're like, that's when you burn glycogen, you've like, you've tapped into and you need to replenish, right? For bone health, for for uh, your glycogen stores. So that's when you'd be like, okay, I'm going to have yogurt and berries and, you know, some raw honey or, you know, you're adding or maple syrup or into there to sweeten it, you know? So you're having like a decent amount and, and it's nutrient rich too, right? You're using fruit, you're using potatoes, you're using um, yogurt, you know? So you, you're not eating junk food, right? You're yeah, eating yeah, yeah. nutrient rich food. But the equivalent is, is, and I think this is important for people to understand who don't understand OFM, is that if you're looking at a diet that contains a hundred grams of carbohydrate, from a real perspective, that's about a cup of rice and two bananas, 100 grams of carbohydrate. Right. So it's still, the, the picture that I'm trying to paint is, in the keto phase, it's 50 grams. Right. A banana and a half or two bananas yeah. or something like that. In your adaptation phase that you're calling it, the total amount of carbohydrate could be expressed as a cup of rice and a couple of bananas. Just so people can kind of like internalize. Yeah, that's, so that's about 100 grams. And I would yeah. say even I'm having people take them up to about 100 to 150 grams okay. on big days. So on a long run day, they'd be up high. But see, I'm, that's why I'm saying strategic because you're okay. using it on the timing it on the day that you have big workouts. So intensity, strength, you'd have more carbohydrates. On long run day, you'd have more carbohydrates. And even I would even say t starting to tinker with timing before too. So, hey, I got speed work today and strength. Well, I want you to have some handful of berries before two hours before that workout, right? Or something like that. So you're timing them around the workouts before and after, if that makes sense. So that then you have some on board and it gets that carbohydrate is what gives us the pop, right? That gives us the intense that we can handle intensity and it gives us recovery focus for topping glycogen back off. Okay. So okay. that's, that's kind of that, that's a six week phase, right? So at the end of four weeks and six weeks, we're 10 weeks in. Got it. Right? Okay. And then after that, what we say is ongoing phase is in the phase three is intuitive. And, and that's that intuitive phase is really starting to say, okay, I'm individualizing for me personally and my lifestyle. So I say, okay, well, I feel better when my carbs are 150, 200 grams a day but I might restrict strategically here and there. Right. And then around like an easy day or a rest day, or I might even intermittent fast one day a week for a long, for like a, a maintenance, easy run. You know, I, I say, I would say people need to be careful with too much fasting if they're training. But what, are, so what are the parameters around the intuitive phase? Cause so you've got the these two, are, you've got these two setups, right? This yep. keto reset in the adaptation phase where first it's almost like a carbohydrate washout is how yeah. you could view that from the, from the, yeah, exactly. from the keto perspective. Yeah, exactly. You teach your body to burn fat okay. instead of carbohydrates. And the second one, you're introducing a little bit more. You're going from 50 grams to 150 grams a day yep. of carbohydrate. And this yep. third phase is, is intuitive. What are the parameters around that other than you, you customize it for each individual? Because what I want to eventually 
relate these to is just some endurance, the endurance consensus that's currently out there in terms of macronutrients. Oh, it's still going to be low carb compared yeah. to the endurance and, consensus. And, and that's what, and that's what, and that's kind of what I want to present to compare and contrast. So in the intuitive phase, what are like, t- take me through a typical diet or what are you typically doing with those athletes? Uh, so most people are, well, I, let me give you what my normal day looks like. Sure. That's probably easier. Yeah. Um, Usually I work out most days like during the week. My maintenance stuff is during my weekly stuff is at lunch. So I have like about a noon workout window, noon to two workout window. So that workout window, I'm going to, I usually what I, most days I'm eating most of my carbohydrates, a majority of them in about an eight hour window. So I'm, I'm, I'm eating still. So I'm not restricting calories, but I am restricting carbohydrates to an eight hour window after the workout. Okay. So, so I'm like, I'm carb fasting. Oh, so I've had my meal the night before, then I'm fasting all night. The next morning going to, till that workout, I've only had usually eggs, you know, maybe some heavy whipping cream in my coffee. Um, and maybe some meat if I have leftovers or something, I might make it with my eggs. And, and then I'm like, so I do have calories in the morning and then I have noon workout and then immediately I'm getting food in me. And that's when I'm going to have, start having carbs, like right after that workout, I'm having carbs. I'm going to like top off glycogen. So I'm ready for my next workout. Right. So I burned glycogen, but what I found is at the beginning of this, so over the time things change. So in the early, the first six months, I had to add a little, if I was going to go do an intensity workout, say in that midweek workout, I'd have to add a few berries or something to give me some pop, right? I needed that pop, you know, so I needed some carbohydrates before the workout, but now I found I don't need it. But I get, I get the fact that you're restricting carbohydrates until about the noon time frame. Totally get it. Yep. At the end of the day, and I'm trying to simplify this just in the, in, in the effort of yep. time, at the end of the day, what is your macronutrient competition composition going to be? you it's it's usually somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent fat um or sometimes even 50 percent fat but the protein and fat are going to be the most uh, take the most of my macros so i'm 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 really i really concentrate on good sources of protein from red meat chicken but full fat skin on the chicken you know catch the drippings dip the dip the all the meat in the drippings, you know, full fat hamburger, you know, full or, uh, ribeyes, roast, T-bones, stuff like that. Um, I'm doing organ meat, like liver, um, mixing it all up. I'm constantly trying to keep fish. I'm trying to keep like a variety of meat sources, but, but kind of prioritizing fattier stuff. So a lot of, a lot of animal protein, but if you work the math on that, you're going to end up around 60, maybe 65% fat, yep. probably 20% protein. Yep. I, I hope you're at 20% protein just to keep your protein requirements. Oh, up. absolutely. And I, and I, that's one thing we prioritize in this is like, after we go into that second phase and, and into the third intuitive phase is that we start pr- prioritizing protein intake per day. Like how much do you weigh? You should probably be hitting about 80% of what your body weight is in grams of protein a day, especially if you're over age 40. I love that ratio. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll get, we'll get too weeded in that with all the bodybuilder stuff, but, yeah, um, totally. um, 
uh, so, so anyway, let's keep painting this picture though. So we're going to just assume, and I'm trying to paint the picture for the audience here that the macronutrient composition at the end of the day for you is about 65% fat, about 20% protein, which leaves about 15% carbohydrate. So based yep. on a, based on a 3000 calorie diet, that's yep. 450 grams of carbohydrates. So if we look at the whole arc of this, the whole arc of your plan, are there any more phases of the plan or is it a three-point plan? It's, it's kind of a three-point plan. Okay, okay. So yep. the whole arc of the plan, you go from rough, roughly, I know there's individualization here and there, but roughly 50 grams of carbs, carbs a day to 150 grams of carbs a day to 450 grams of carbs a day over the course of 12 weeks. Yeah, but I would say that you're not, you can't put it on a daily basis because it depends on what you're doing that day. Okay. If you average all seven days of the week out. I'm I'm never at 450 grams of carbohydrates a day. Okay. So it's even less than that. So it's got to be less than 15%. I'm I'm no more than usually 200 at the most. Okay. So what I'm replacing in intensity, I'm replacing it with protein. So the, the macro that I increase when I'm in higher training volume would be protein because it's insulin stable and you can convert. It's not as efficient as process as carbohydrate, but I will, I'll convert through gluconeogenesis. I'm going to convert some of that to glucose to right to top off some glycogen yeah. with extra protein. Yeah. So I'm, I'm prioritizing protein in this scenario when I'm in training. Okay. I misstate the reason you're confused with that is I actually misstated the, the, the math on that. It's 400 in the final phase for you. It's 450 calories worth of carbohydrates, not 450 grams. Yeah. What would that be in grams? So we got a ballpark 100, for that. So 125, 110. Yeah. So, okay. That that's okay. Yeah. Okay. So gotcha. you're going, you're yeah, going no, that from, threw me for a loop there. Cause you said 450 grams. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. No, I don't yeah. ever have that. Yeah. Sometimes in four years, sometimes when I do the math in my head, it's, it, it ends up, it ends up bad. But anyway, <laughs> the, so the arc that I wanted to paint is that you're going from a very, very low carbohydrate diet to a slightly higher, which is still low carbohydrate diet. It's still low. Yes. Still low, right? 100 grams a day yeah. to maybe yeah. a little over 100 grams a day. Yeah, yeah. So like on a long run, like a long run, around a long run or bigger bigger volume blocks or even a weekly volume blocks, you might be high. You might be 100 to 100 and for, for low carb. You, you'd be 100, 100 to 180 grams a day of carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. That's That could be like, you know, That'd be five, six servings of fruit. Okay. And so you take, you take this pattern, which you used you as the blueprint for this pattern and you use that for your athletes. So yeah, the people that want to do OFM, that's kind of the protocol. And then after that, we're tinkering based on how that individual. So some people are like, say six, four, you know, 180, like they're going to have, they're going to have a bigger caloric need during the day than say, uh, someone who's my height, five nine one forty. But right? but so, I get the caloric need, but you change their ratios based on their size. Uh, some will find that they do better on a little more carbohydrate, and some will find that they do better on lower carbohydrate. It just depends on the individual. And the re- so it's hard but, to put it into like, oh, this person's in this camp, and this person. It's so in. We have individual metabolisms, right? Totally some of agree. us. Right. So that this one's, this is a tricky one to nail down. That's why it's kind of almost like, you know, a dartboard, there's a target in the middle, but we're, we might be hitting the outer zone, right? <laughs> like it's just, it's hard to put 
Yeah, but here, so here's the thing that I've always, here's one of, one of the contentions I've always had with this strategy and you're, and yep. you're kind of playing into this all, all, already with all due respect is I completely concur with you that nutrition and metabolism is individual. There's going to be yep. some individuals and we're not going to get into the weeds with this, but there are going to be some individuals that adapt really well to this diet or that diet. They can thrive on a carnivorous diet. They can thrive on a vegan diet and kind of everywhere in between. But you've taken your blueprint, the Jeff Browning optimized fat metabolism blueprint, and you're applying it to these other individuals, which is the opposite of individualization. Well, no, we're using it as a, we're using it as a guideline. Because if to keep fat burning, but at the guide rate. the guideline is based off of you though. That's my point. Like, does no, this protocol? The, gui- does the this- guideline's based off of how how you can still meander back into ketosis here and there. Based on what? Because because if we're staying in ketosis part of the time then we know that we can burn fat at a high rate. So the idea here is to keep fat metabolism optimized. Okay. We're, we're burning at a higher rate than if I go back to eating a high rate of carbohydrates, then I'm my, it's going to downregulate. And this is what the studies show at goo. As soon as I have gels, a big amount at one time at one time. Right. But that's not how I use it real life. But when I use it, in one setting, then all of a sudden I have an insulin response. As soon as I have an insulin response, the body says store fat in the cell and quit burning fat. It quits tapping into, it wants to quit tapping into fat. It's not an on off switch. It's a gray zone. That- but, but you can't, you can't get around the fact that you're basing this three point blueprint off of you. Well, not off just me, right? It's off Zach Bitter. Two it's people. off of, what? Two people. Two. Keep naming okay. them, Jeff. You can keep well, going. You said, it's a, well, here's another person that does it, but doesn't, doesn't really, he follows it, but doesn't follow it in a like strict OFM sense. But Jason Slarb's another one. Right? Okay. You got three. Throw him, right. <laughs> keep going. And, and so anyway, I'm using this as yeah, a no, cheek. I'm, I'm using- saying it's, it's not a majority of people. We yeah. are outliers that, that are, that are, like we said, it's an emerging what we understand about fat science is still emerging. And and that's my point here is that we're, you can call us whatever you want. We can call us outliers and call us pioneers. We can call us Ooh, like <laughs> pioneers. Yeah. Oh man. That's, 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 as, that's as cocky as I'm uh, All right. Fair enough. Um, Cause I, that's not my style. Outliers but, is pretty cocky too, but I, I, <laughs> well, no, no, I just mean that we're trying stuff that, 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 that the consensus doesn't necessarily agree. Okay. With. Okay. We can, we can agree on that because if you do go to the consensus and there has been, scientific consensus reported on this from the International Journal of Sports Nutrition, when they have experts, a panel of experts that spend their whole careers looking at nutrition. And they did this specifically with ultramarathons. But I would say looking at nutrition in a specific paradigm. Well, they're looking at nutrition across ultra running. And they once again, they do it as a profession. And their orientation is... They want athletes to perform the best. That's yep. that's sports dietitians and registered dietitians and sports scientists. That's their only orientation. We want to get athletes to perform at their best. Their consensus comes out to be that endure, that ultramarathon athletes will perform better 
off of a 60% carbohydrate diet. And we can move the individual needle around to 50 or 65 or 70, but that is on the, like, it's quite literally the opposite side of the fence of the scenario that you painted, which is 30, which is 30% and below. And so when I, when I see that, and I don't have, I don't have issues when practitioners are, are not going with a scientific consensus when they're in opposition to a scientific consensus, but, but they better have solid rationale behind it. And when I see the rationale be, here's my blueprint, I'm going to, I'm going to translate this blueprint to other people in the nutrition area, knowing that that's so individual. That's when I think that the, that the rationale starts to break down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, the, I'm not just, it's just not me, Zach Bitter and Slarb. Like, right. I've, you know, the people I've coached on this over the last, you know, few years have, it's been, people have stuck to it because they found a benefit in it. Right. So for them personally, you know, and a lot of the people that I see really have benefit with this is people over the age of 35, right. They're, they're heavier than they used to be. They've lost 35, 40 pounds. Now they have tons of energy. They, all of a sudden I don't have to, they don't have GI stress in a race. They don't have to take as many calories in a race as they used to. They could, you know, they, they recover really fast. I yeah. think that's probably the biggest one on this. It's just a lack of inflammation. Um, even up to, I, I've had an athlete at the age of 62, who's a longtime ultra runner have a very similar. So yeah, like I don't have like, you know, the international, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, sports nutrition folks are not like, going to back me on this one. Right. <laughs> but they leave the door open. And I mean, in your credit and the, and the, and, and for the, for everybody who's trying an OFM diet or a low carb diet, every time one of these comes out and this has been, I've, I've probably seen four rounds of this in my coaching career. There's always a little bit of the door that's kind of opened and the, the way that they couch the little bit of the door it being opened is, but it warrants further investigation. That's the phrasing that any of these consensus statements will use. And so you do have that, you do have that to, to, to like lean on. And I agree. I think both of us agree that we do need more research in this area. No. And I think one of the things that if we look at the research in the past, that it's been flawed because what we understood was like, we, we, they, they changed the diet for seven to 14 days or three weeks. And what we understand is that three weeks, you're barely, you're just opening that pathway. Right. So, that's why I think like the, probably the gold standard study right now for fat is the faster study. Yeah. But wait, hold on. Why? So I agree with you on that statement. Why is your keto washout period four weeks? Well, because it's really, if you, if you look at the way we do it, it's really 10 weeks, but not the, the keto, keto part initially of initially because it's low volume, but, but here's, here, this is something that we haven't got into. And I want to make sure that this comes across clear yeah. is if we look at keto diet, most people will agree like 50 grams or less a day. So you can get you in ketosis, right? That's the point is ketosis means that you're converting fatty acids to blood ketones. So you can burn them for glucose. Basically the body can burn them for glucose. That's the simple way or simple explanation, right? So that's what we're doing that first four weeks. We're taking intensity back. We're taking volume back so we can get you adapted and and in ketosis. Once you're in ketosis, then we start bringing back the carbohydrates strategically around effort and volume. But what you'll find is ketosis is different for an athlete 
than it is for a sedentary person or someone who's doing 20 or 30 minutes worth of ex- light aerobic exercise every day. Like we're talking about ultra runners here, right? So this is for ultra running the way I approach it. So we're bringing in more carbohydrates around that effort and volume, but they're still going to be in ketosis. So that, that 150, 150, 200 grams, what we're finding in really healthy metabolisms, you could probably even go up to 300, 250, 300 grams a day. And some athletes that they still would, they might knock them out of ketosis for 24 to 48 hours. But as soon as they got back to their normal diet, the day after the run, like the day when they're not really training that hard and they took their carbohydrates back a little bit because of that day's intensity and volume, then all of a sudden they're back in ketosis and they're burning fat at a high rate again. Okay. That's fair enough. I mean, you're looking at the whole arc is kind of what you're saying and not the strict stereotypical ketogenic arc, which is 12 weeks of 50 grams or less. That's when you start to produce more blood ketones. And if you, you know, somehow ruin it by, going up to 75 or God forbid, hundred grams of carbohydrates a day, you've then kicked your body out of ketosis. You're still looking at the whole art. I get it. I get it. I think that's a, that's a yeah. valid kind of rational argument that we're not going to get too much into the weeds too. Yeah. Okay. You, so you mentioned, you mentioned these, uh, these benefits, right? We can yep. talk about the consensus statements and things like that. I don't, I don't think that that's that worthwhile of a discussion. I do want to talk about the practical benefits and we mentioned three of them earlier. One of them is the metabolic crossover point. The other one is enhanced recovery. And the last one is GI distress, which I agree if we can improve any or all of those using whatever training strategy, the athlete's going to be better off. You would agree with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Any, any three of those, okay. right? Just, yeah, just one of the three. Okay. So let's do this. I'll offer up what is mine and probably a common criticism across each of those points as it relates to a low carbohydrate diet. And then you can tell me why that's wrong. I'll give you the last, (laughs) I'll give you the last word on each of them. Oh, okay. Is that fair? Fair, fair enough. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Okay. So first off the metabolic crossover point. Yep. So we've known for probably a hundred years, that you can influence the metabolic crossover point. And just to, to refamiliarize everybody who's not uh, intimately involved in the vocabulary, the metabolic crossover point refers to the exercise intensity at which you are burning an equal amount of fat and an equal amount of carbohydrate. And it typically occurs about, you mentioned 50 to 65% of VO2 max. I'll use, I'll use 65% just to make it easy. And that's what we see in endurance populations. So 65% of VO2 max, that's a normal endurance run. You go out, you go and run, you're running about 65% of your VO2 max. You're burning about 50% carbohydrates, 50% fat. As long as you're not fat adapted, you're eating up. I want, I want to say a normal diet, but it's not normal because 50% of the people on this call, it would be. Actually, maybe average if we average stars. Anyway, <laughs> so we've done we've known for a long time that you can influence the metabolic crossover point via a myriad of ways. You can influence yep. it with training. That's probably yep. the biggest one. We see this yep. in the lab all the time. You just train, crossover point gets better. Yep. You can influence it with diet acutely and chronically. And you see this in your testing as well, that once you start to induce or once you start to ingest exogenous carbohydrate, your oxidation of that carbohydrate then goes up. 
So that yep. crossover point where we see this 50-50 split between carbohydrates and fat is is uh is can be manipulated by simply the foodstuffs that you're taking in at that time. And that has a big effect on the amount of of carbohydrate versus fat that you're actually burning in a real environment. Right, what you consume. What you actually consume. And so my contention is that the vast majority of the improvements that you get specifically having to do with the metabolic crossover point happen with years and years of training. Those adaptations take a long, long time to actually sink in and can be manipulated to a great extent with just the calories that you're taking in at the time. And there's no situation, there's no ultramarathon situation that exists where you where you cannot rely or where you you always will have to rely on some amount of exogenous carbohydrate. And that's going to influence your burn rate of carbohydrates and fats to a much greater extent in that real time, in that race type of scenario than all of the nutritional training that you've done before because the physical training does so much and because it's manipulated by what you're actually taking in at the time. So that, that paints the argument for carbohydrate crossover is manipulated via other ways to a, great, a much greater extent other ways. And you're using this dietary manipulation to influence which you can always get in a lab. You can always get that manipulation in a lab. But once you take it out in the real world, it starts to fall apart. So this what, is we're at the what's, beginning of our. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Sorry, so, so what's the? You. No, no, no. It's okay. So what? What's the? What's wrong? Tell me what's wrong with that argument. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with all of it, <laughs> but I do disagree that you can use your diet to influence it at a higher. You can push that crossover point more with diet. That's the only really the part of the argument that I'm bringing to it is that because what I've seen is my crossover point really get pushed. And so like, like I'm, I'm getting way, and, and we, we've seen even in the faster study is that we saw like the crossover points in the fat group, in the fat adapted group being really high, like 75% of VO2 max. Mine's at 80 some percent of VO2 max is my crossover. Point. Yeah. But Jeff, let me give you some context on this because we have over, I think like 1500 data sets in our lab that's yep. not that uncommon to push it up to 80% for with a normally trained endurance athlete. And I, and I, and if you look at the stats, which I actually have right here, if you look at the cool. stats, it, it, it is uncommon, but when we're talking about really high level athletes, which you're one of them, yes, and I, am. I actually, I have access to a lot of other high level athletes that's not that uncommon. Maybe, maybe a smidge, maybe you can look at it and go, Hey, you know, like the highest athletes might be at 82% or 80% or something like that. But it's not such a huge outlier that I would look at, that I would look at your results when I see your, and, and you were very gracious at sharing some of these, uh, sharing some of this lab data from me that you did at goo, which we're going to get into it a little bit. When I look at it through that lens, through my lens of experience, I don't see this, huge magnified fat burning outlier. Okay. So what I see, what, what I'm seeing as far as with just 
N equals my athletes. <laughs> That's really my data set, <laughs> Fair right? Fair enough. Okay. So, um, I'm seeing not only like, yeah, we want to push the crossover point, but it also, it, it, there's a trickle down effect to burning a higher percentage of fat during exercise, right? To be able to shift that crossover point, because what you're doing is you're getting, you're getting less, less inflammation. We go back to that one to 0.75 ratio yep. that we talked about yep. earlier. We're going to talk right. about that more in depth for point yeah. number two, but keep going. Yeah. But I mean, I think that that's where I see this thing shine is that I'm seeing athletes one, they can maintain body weight with eating this way. One, because once you get over and, and a lot but of my that's athletes, different than the crossover here. point you're making, you're starting to, you're starting to make a body weight argument here, which is sure. different than the, and I'll, I'll concede as a method of caloric restriction you can use a low carb diet to restrict calories. Now we can argue again on another podcast on what right. the best way to restrict calories are. That's a completely different, completely different topic, but we're talking about the influence that it has on metabolic crossover. And I agree with you that you can get the manipulation in the lab. You're right. The faster study, the faster study demonstrated that. And for those, for those, uh, for the listeners that are not familiar with the faster study, what they did is they took a cohort of elite ultramarathon athletes and put them on a ketogenic diet and and essentially compared their pre ketogenic performance, not performance, but their pre ketogenic steady state metabolism to their post-ketogenic steady-state metabolism. And in this case, the steady state was 64% of VO2 max. Am I getting that right, Jeff? 64%? Uh, yes, okay. I, think, uh, I think that's what it was. So it's normal endurance pace. Right? We've talked about 65% of yep. VO2 max. And what they found was is that in the ketogenic state, all of their fat metabolizing things were upregulated. They were upregulating their fat metabolism. To which the general, the, and I'll just paint the criticism on that uh, study with a very broad brush, is kind of a no shit type of outcome. When you don't have any carbohydrates available and you're going you're, you're to burn fat, period. That always happens. Now, the, the total amount of fat oxidation or the, or the high, the, the, the rate of fat oxidation you could say is surprising, but not the fact that they're actually oxidizing more fat. It's the extent to which. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That, I think that's, that's a good. fair, fair portrait of that study. Cause that study gets thrown around in the low carb community, like the friggin' Bible. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Good point. Okay. Let, let's leave the crossover point. Right. And I, I think, I think the, this, the consensus that we can come out with is you can manipulate that a lot of different ways. You totally can. And and you are you are using the dietary manipulation as an enhancement to the manipulations that can be made via training. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Simple, simple. We'll yeah. leave it there in the interest of time. Okay. Yeah, totally. The next one, the recovery one. And this this uh, well, I was thinking about this this morning uh, when I was walking my dog and I'm like, ah, oh, this is gonna get super weeded because we really don't and the reason we're gonna get super we don't or, truly understand it, right? We said correct. theories. That's why I say that's why I make sure I throw out there it's a theory, right? It, we don't know for sure what what why there we're seeing this like better, but mine was night and day. Yeah. As far as recovery. my athletes are experiencing it too, that I coach. Yeah. And, and I, 
I'm not going to discount that. I, whenever athletes pr- uh, improve their performance through whatever mechanism, I think as a practitioner, we have to look at that and go, okay, maybe there's something there. But what I will always go to is what are the plausible mechanisms of that actually happening? And you mentioned your theory, which is, which I'm going to just one, right? There might be multiples. I don't know. You're right. There might be multiples, but the two that get thrown out, thrown out there are this, this thing with metabolism, right? Somehow you're, you're metabolizing different substrates. And because of that difference in metabolism, there is some sort of pickup in the amount of recovery that's going on. And the other one has to do very uh, kind of very specifically with the oxidative stress and somehow burning more fat. That's the key to the theory on my end is that what are, at least in our camp, that's kind of the theory is that we're just doing less oxidative stress over the long haul. So meaning over say a hundred miler, right? If you're burning more, a higher rate of fat per minute, right? For your aerobic needs, then you're going to, do less oxidative stress. That's yeah. the basics. Yeah, but so here's here's my contention with that is you're basing yeah. that on the on on the carbon dioxide that's produced. Car- right. Somehow the carbon dioxide produced is 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 deleterious to an athlete. Right. And you mentioned I want you to elaborate on this a little bit just kind of based on your research. So you mentioned something earlier that for every liter of oxygen that you consume when you're metabolizing a carbohydrate for energy, that's going to produce a liter of carbon dioxide. Yeah. For every liter of, of, of oxygen that you consume when you metabolize a fat into energy, that's going to produce 0.7 liters of carbon dioxide. Yeah. That's based off of chemistry. So you go yeah. and you do the chemical equation for ATP and you look at carbohydrate compared to fat. You're left over with those ratios, one to one on the carbohydrate side, one to 0.7 on the fat side. And so this has been brought up in the low carb community kind of ad nauseum that because there's less carbohydrate or there's less carbon dioxide produced when you're metabolizing fat, that says that it's, it's a cleaner source of fuel. Am I synopsizing that that, correctly? I think that's been thrown around quite a bit. Okay. So in the real world, how does that actually work? And and so the the term that we use in physiology for this is the respiratory exchange ratio, which all it is, is it's a proxy to get at how much carbohydrate versus fat that you're use that you're that you're burning in a laboratory type of setting. So yeah, we look totally. at we look at the we look at how much carbon dioxide is getting kicked out by the athlete. We know how much oxygen they're taking in because they've got a mask yep. on. We can measure all that stuff. We can figure out that ratio and then calculate. That's a key word. We're calculating, not measuring. We calculate the percentage of fat versus carbohydrate that they're uh, that they're doing. So in the real world, Jeff. What like what does that look like when you're on the treadmill doing your graded exercise test? We mean what are the what are the numbers yeah. look like? When- yeah, just just run us through this respiratory exchange ratio. We mentioned it was 0.7 when you're burning pure fat, and one when you're bur- burning pure carbohydrate. I mean, I think that probably would need to get into the. I can't tell you off the top of my head. I'd have to look at like what we're like the goo study. Yeah, Is so that what you're talking about. Yeah, just so let me give you a quick just a quick run of show. So these, this 0.7 and 1 ratio that you mentioned is based off of chemistry. That's yeah, all yeah, it's yeah. based off of, just chemistry. Yeah. 
Well, that's what I was saying. It's just a theory. I don't know whether that's exactly what we're getting. I don't know if that's what's causing the better recovery. You know, like all I know is I can experience, I experience better recovery. My athletes experience better recovery. But my contention with that is that in the real world, you're not really expelling that much more carbon dioxide in either setting. And I'm going to walk through that math really quickly. I'm not even going to get into carbon dioxide is bad for the body and there's more free radicals produced and things like that. I just want to talk about the math. But it's still, it's still, if you look at those two numbers compared side by side, right? One is 0.7 is a lot less than one. Agreed. Agreed. Totally agree. But that's not the real world. So to paint the picture here, you, if I'm sitting here, I just consume my eggs and spinach and salsa breakfast. I'm sitting here. I probably have a a respiratory exchange ratio of about 0.8, maybe 0.75. And so what that indicates is I'm burning primarily fats and some carbohydrate because it's above 0.7. Remember if I was at 0.7, that's 0.7 liters divided by one. If I was at 0.7, it'd be pure fats. If I was at one, it would be pure carbohydrate. So I'm sitting here, I'm going to, I'm burning about 0.75, 0.75, maybe 0.8. If I get you know really into the conversation, right. we put somebody on a treadmill, and as the exercise intensity increases, that ratio is going to go up. Yeah, it's going to go up and up and up, and it even actually gets over one, which is yeah. indicative of contributions from. I'm going to use a word I don't like: anaerobic energy sources. Yeah, that's the typical run of show. Yep. So. What I'm trying to get at is, is when you become a fat adapted athlete at a specific intensity, what does your respiratory exchange ratio go to and from? Like, what's the difference? And this is, I don't think think we know that data. uh, Well, I mean, you can look at your data, right? From the goose study, because you had one trial where you were fed carbohydrate and you had one yeah, trial it, where you were fasted. You know, you the paper in front of you, I'd have to find the page. But just, ball, just ballpark it. Is it is it one-tenth or two-tenths? I think I was going, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think tenth or two-tenths. I don't let's know just for say, sure. Let's just say it's a tenth, which would be a lot. Yeah. That would be like going from 0.8 to 0.9. But or, mine or, takes a lot. So we're talking about respiratory. Uh, no, okay. Hold I, on, hold on, hold on. We're just doing. Yeah, sim- we're doing just throw, like, data out there. Just to, no, like, but we're doing simple math. We're doing simple yeah, math. Yeah, okay. So if you, and what you're doing literally is, as you said, you're kicking out less carbon dioxide. Yep. So if you have, if you're kicking out one tenth of a liter per minute less carbon dioxide. What does that mean in the real world for a real person? Well, I mean, one tenth would be, let's put it in like a hundred miles terms. No, no, no. Let's just do just a normal run. Just a normal run. One tenth of a, because that's the difference. We just explained that. One tenth of a liter less carbon dioxide per minute over over a 60 minute run is going to be about 15 liters of carbon dioxide. That more or less, you mean la- less or more, depending upon what side of the yeah, venture yeah, on that one. Which but, side we're talking? Okay. Okay, I'm following you now. Okay, you're, fo- you're following me now. So in that in that 60 minute run that your normal athlete has done, they've they have produced 
15 less liters of carbon dioxide. Yeah. In this fat, in this kind of, in this fat adapted state. Right. That's less than two and a half percent of all of the carbon, of all of the carbon dioxide that you're going to produce in a day. And that does not even account for the, re, for the reduction in running economy, which we're going to talk about in a second, that goes on when you're burning more fat. So because of the reduction in running economy, you have to be at a higher oxygen uptake for yeah. any single which we level. Which in the goose study, Which you right? see in the goose study. And so that 2.5% is even less. It's probably closer to 1%. And my point with this carbon dioxide and this is i'm just get i'm just trying to tear apart the carbon dioxide theory i'm not saying that there's oh, yeah, another good theory out there but my point with this carbon dioxide theory like okay we're going to burn more fat and the reason we want to burn more fat is because you can recover better and the reason that you recover better is because there's less carbon dioxide produced that doesn't hold any water based on the math okay then then maybe that's not the theory i yeah. don't know so what I is mean, the plausible I'll, theory I'll, I'll say i don't know yeah <laughs> But all I know is that my athletes and myself see a huge, I mean, okay, I'll give you just a, a, an example on my own. This is just my own N, N equals one. Yeah, when yeah. I first did it, right. I had 22 hundreds to compare what my post recovery looked like when I raced. Yeah, And that's, right? a, that's a pretty decent data set for you. Right. 22 hundreds yeah. yeah. of like a high that. carb athlete. My wife used to just be hated hundreds because I looked so hammered. I was, I was swollen, really, really bad inflammation, knees, ankles, cankles, you know, like bags under my eyes, kind of a little, even like, um, what I'd say brain fog for a week after the race. And, and I just chalked it up to that's hundreds, you know? And, but when I did this, I had uh, a good buddy of mine, George, who works at Patagonia as an ultra runner. And, uh, Jesse Haynes and Kira Henniger, right? We're all at Hurt 100, help crew for me. And one, they made a comment as soon as I showed up, my body type had changed. <laughs> um, just how much I, how much like leaner and all that kind of stuff I was. But the other was when I showed up too, um, they knew what my post 100 looked like. They both, all of them had crewed for me before. So they had this reference point. My wife had a reference point. Sure. I had a reference point. Um, and after the race, I was, I was taking photos of my ankles, my knees, um, and just telling my wife, Oh my God, it's like, it's been, you know, a 40 or 24 hours since the race. And I'm doing air squats. Like my quads are hardly sore. Like I'm not, I just feel, I mean, I didn't have the inflammation I normally did. I like bounce back super quick. And, and, to the enough of a, of a difference in body composition, as far as like what I look like afterwards that Jesse was like, and both Jesse and George did the shift. They were like, dude, I'm doing whatever you just did. I'm doing it. And so Jesse's another <laughs> one that does it. Right. So there's another name um, and <laughs> to throw in with Zach. And <laughs> so you so, got five so, now. Yeah, we're up to five. All we're men, all men, all men. By the way, <laughs> yeah, totally. And and that's something we should we need to talk we will, about. I want will. to talk about yep. women too. Yep, we'll get it. Yep, because it's different. Yep. Um, and so I, I guess the biggest thing, and and then with my athletes too, we just I've seen this like, and it's been consistent across the board since that shift because I've been doing it for four years now. 
a little over four years, right? So I've done what have I done? 3,900s now. So what is that? Nine, eight, 1700s. So almost half and half. Mm-hmm. I've done 1700s since I made the shift. <clears throat> but you've got, I, I think what you're getting at is you've got a lot of personal and also professional experience with your athletes. Yeah. That indicates that something is going on from a recovery. And I don't know what it is, yeah. man, but all yeah. I know is they're like, I'll give you whatever that. Whatever it is, it's working. I'll, 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 I'll give you that. And I think that's a, I think that that is an accurate statement of the state of affairs in terms of your recovery being enhanced on a low carb diet is we don't yeah. know the mechanisms very well. No, there's, we don't. There's some anecdotal evidence to point that, that, that that is actually the case. And I'll offer you up my final opinion on this. And you can tell me if, if, if do you, you want to debunk you have a theory it, on it? My, yeah, absolutely. My theory is, I'd love is, to hear your theory. is, is your, your nutrient quality independent of the macronutrients. So independent of the carbohydrate, fat, and protein composition of the diet is just better. Because you're, because you're, because you're, you're concentrating you're, on good foods. You're so concentrating well. on good foods and that trickles down to the recovery. Not It's not, not the macronutrient composition or the restriction of carbohydrate that is ne- that's facilitating the enhanced recovery. It's the overall quality of the diet. Well, I would say that the athletes that I am coaching, that is a good point because they are like really cleaning up. Yeah. Like, because this makes you clean up. Like, yeah, cause you're totally only eating nutrient dense foods. Well, I mean, and you, once again, you can go back and look at, if you go back and look at the obesity research, which there's a lot of research in this area and they look at diet adherence and how that impacts weight loss. That's the, that's the only thing that makes a difference is just the adherence piece. If you're consciously focused on eating high quality foods independent of the macronutrient composition. So the percentage of carbohydrates, fats, and protein, they're going to lose more weight. They're probably going to perform better. They're going to recover okay, quicker so and things I like that. One, one side thing that I, that just, just my own stuff. I, I like to tinker after hundreds because I do like at least four a year. Mm-hmm. And so I like to tinker with what the week after the race, like what I eat. And so like, sometimes I'll let myself go and be like, man, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have like a gluten-free pizza. Right. And I'm going to have like, all, I'm going to have all these like foods that I normally would like kind of restrict a little bit or like only have on very special occasions, you know, and save it for those times. And I'll kind of just eat whatever. And the one thing that I found is when I do go to that gluten-free pizza, I'm freaking inflamed. Like I'm swollen, but if I go, as soon as I tighten it up, if I tighten it back up and restrict my carbohydrates down and then like uh, up my protein and fats, all of a sudden that inflammation goes down. I drop the water. I like don't have the inflammation and I recover faster. So the times I play and even tinkering from day to day, even from what I ate and then I go, Oh my God, I got swollen. And then I'll like tighten it up and all that. It'll flush all that like swelling out. But still it's the same thing, right? It's, we don't know the mechanism. This is just yeah, what know. I've seen. So and, I don't know what it is, but there's something there. But, but suffice it to say this carbon dioxide theory is nonsense because just mathematically it does, it does, it's a very trivial amount. So because we've got to not look, we've got to like throw that away. Okay. I like that. Okay. I'm cool with that. Okay. Let's go on to the third. Let's go on to the third thing. GI distress. <laughs> um, so it makes all the sense in the world 
that you're, yep. if you're consuming less exogenous sources of fuel, so less gels that you're taking in, less pizza at the aid stations, <laughs> less, you know, whatever else that you're taking Don't in. Don't eat pizza at the aid stations. Uh, we, we, well, hey, man, I, I was in Turtle Jean's. I had a lot of pizza. But oh, that's sure, the, dude, that kind of race. <laughs> by the way, I wanted to say, to side note, good job, Thanks, dude. Thanks. So I want to do that race. That I'm intrigued. It's so rad. It's like everything about it even the awesome pizza that you get to eat around everywhere so you can dude if you do that race eat eat some freaking pizza jeff come on i will eat some pizza okay good all right i'll i'm gonna put that on instagram (laughs) i love it a big old pizza i love it i love (laughs) it Uh, anyway um so it, it suffice to say that if you're consuming less exogenous fuel wherever that fuel is coming from during an ultra marathon, you're going to have less GI distress. Absolutely. Vol- total volume of food, total amount of calories yep. that you have to process and things like that. Yep. Yep. Now, I would say that by, consu- by being able to consume more, your performance will be greater. And that's accentuated the shorter and the shorter the duration is. Because the cost, the oxygen cost of yeah. consuming carbohydrate and then using that carbohydrate is less than the oxygen cost of using your endogenous, mainly endogenous sources of fat. Okay. And so I I look I just look at the principle of solving GI distress not through reducing the amount of stuff that the person has to take in but by increasing the amount that they can tolerate because of that proposition. Because if you can tolerate more, you're gonna be able to exercise at a higher intensity for longer. And you can't dispute that. If you can take in more exogenous fuel, you can exercise at a higher intensity for longer. So that's the orientation. So for GI distress, I'm I'm just telling you how I'm coming at my orientation, which is the opposite of how you're, because you're coming at GI uh, distress from reducing the intake. I'm coming at GI distress from, from being able to tolerate a higher intake. But with a cost, right? Because this is where the recovery piece comes in. There's something about the increased in consumption of carbohydrate during exercise that there's some correlation there because when we can back it off, there's better recovery. So, because we still use carbohydrate during a race, right? I still use it during a race. I just use a lot less than, because I had trained myself to use a lot in, in my carbohydrate days for 15 years. Like at the end of like when I, there at the end, I was, I was taking, I could handle 60, 70 gels during a race. Yeah, but but I guess what I'm trying to say is is on an optimized fat diet, you're in, like part of the part of the inherent strategy is you have to rely on less exogenous sources of fuel because you're not training that aspect. But you are. That's where the strategic carbohydrate use because we're we're still keeping your body using it during exercise, during long runs, your IV dripping carbohydrate, like simple carbohydrates during long runs. You're still using it. So you're still that that what we're what it's really we're 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 shooting for is a dual or what we call flex fuel, dual fuel source, right? We can burn high fat fat at a high rate because we're manipulating everyday diet, but then we can also burn carbohydrate efficiently too. We can use both. That's the one thing. Like it becomes like a rocket fuel. Like that's, that's the difference I see from my carbohydrate days of 15 years of racing at that. And where I'd be like, I've got to have them or I'm in a bonk. Whereas now I, 
I, they're, they're like, I, I'm dripping them the whole time because I can keep that. I can pop, I can surge, I can like throw down at a high level, but I'm still, because I'm IV dripping them the whole time, I'm never consuming a ton in one setting. Like I'm not ever like overloading my system too much unless my heart rate's going to creep up. So this is where the strategic, for example, I'm, I'm IV dripping, you know, I'm, I'm sponsored by goo disclaimer there. So I use goo products, but I'll, 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 but I just want to give you an example of my fueling, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I'm IV dripping goo roctane, non-caffeinated goo roctane grape, like during the race, like that's a drip about 125 calories between every aid station, right? I probably hit about 200 calories an hour is what I'm hitting. I'm five, nine, 140. I'm hitting about 200 calories an hour in carbohydrate. Okay. So maybe 150 early on hundred to 150, but at once I'm over three or four hours in, I'm like at about a 200 because I'm, I'm, I'm racing. Right. So I'm at a pretty high output, right. Especially later, especially something like sure, Western States. Sure, 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 yeah. Right. Like, like this year's Western States, uh, I, I mean, we threw down the last 60 K like I, I ran five. I ran the fastest split on Strava from four still to the finish. And Regan got second and Kyle Petrari got third. So eighth, ninth, and 10th place, we all ran the fastest splits ever on Strava. That's just only for people that have been in the race. No one's going to run that, that sure. split because it, it has the river crossing, yeah. right? But, but the point is that we, we were at a high output, right? At the end of 100, right? So the point here is you're using it strategically. So if, if I know a hill climb's coming up, I'm going to pop a whole gel and I'm going to ride that high up that climb. But then when I'm back to my aerobic zones, I'm burning fat still at a, a decently high rate. And this is, this goes back to our early conversation that about like what we want to test at goo, like in real world, con, real world conditions, right. Is being able to bring in like, how, how does this, what does this look like at two or three hours into a race versus like a 70 minute treadmill test? Yeah. And that's, that's gonna, that I, I think that's going to be fascinating, but suffice it to say on this GI distress, there's two different strategies that you can take. You can either try to burn more fat so that you're taking in less fuel. And in your case, that's 200 calories, or yep. you can train the gut such that you can to, take to in just eat more carbs. To, to, to take in more fuel. And yep. I guess what I, I guess what I'm saying is, is, the side of the, the the side of the fence that I typically steer people towards is to train your gut because there's a performance benefit for being able to for being able to tolerate more exogenous carbohydrates because we know that burning fat, particularly at high intensities, has a cost to it. And that cost yeah, but, is and that cost is running testing, economy. Like the, yeah, there is a cost on paper. But in real world scenario, meaning how my perceived effort is lower. Yeah, but from a training perspective, though, okay, let's get, let's actually, let's go to, this is a good place to transition to the goose studies. Because I think yeah. there's a couple of pieces of this that will uh, bring this to light. So you went into Goo Energy Labs in Berkeley, California. They have an exercise physiology uh, set up there, metabolic testing, and it's, it's, in a consumer setting, it's a, it's, it's a neat setup because you can do whatever you want to do. 
It's not like a yeah. university setting where they have to, you know, adhere to a certain protocol and they have to get it approved and you've got to have, you know, 15 people and it's got to be homogenous group and things like that. They can bring, they can bring you in Jeff and they can poke and prod and do whatever they want to you right. to you. We and, can do it however we decide. Yeah. And so the strength of it is the strength of having a setup like that is you can do whatever you want. The weakness is, is it's like isolated to, okay, it's just this person under just these conditions that we, that, that we actually studied. But needless to say, I, 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 I found it interesting, not fascinating, but interesting uh, uh, in terms of what you guys were actually able to do and produce. So why don't you run through very quickly the, the research protocol as a whole and then the five different setups that you had. And then we're going to focus yep. on like two of them that are probably more applicable. Yeah. Well, okay. So <laughs> we had one, I went back up a week before I went relative, relatively low carb. So for the week before the the test, so that meant we wanted to see like, kind of, you know, if I, th- what I'd normally do before a race is about 12 to five days out from the race, I'd go more of like a keto slash carnivore phase during that phase to really get my fat burning kicked up a little bit, like to re-enhance it a little bit. Right. And then bring carbs back in the five days before the race. Okay before like a hundred. So like, so that we wanted to kind of, we wanted to mirror doing a little bit of carbohydrate restriction right before the event. So we could get a baseline of where I burn fat when I'm in that phase. So as soon as I showed up, we did a fasted, we did, we did, um, a full inside tracker blood work. Okay. Um, and then we did, uh, a fasted test. Let's, so the first let's, thing, let's back up just a little bit though, because you did yeah. the same test protocol across five different conditions. Yes. Let's go okay, over the, so the just go over the testing protocol okay, first, gotcha, and then sorry. we'll get we, into the five different conditions. No, no, that's fine. I think, okay. but a lot of people don't understand what an what a graded exercise test can actually look like. So let's okay. go over how that graded exercise test worked first and then the different iterations of it that you, okay. that you did. So they have, this is kind of cool for ultra running because they have one of those, uh, 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 one of those treadmills that goes like to 40%. Yeah. Right, it's a right? woodway. It's a woodway, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I think it's, uh, I think it was uh, Nordic track, oh, okay. like the incline trainer oh, Okay, cool. is what we were on. So, okay. So what, what we do is, um, uh, we do a 20 minute warm or 15 minute warm up. Put you on a treadmill, okay. put the yep. oxygen mask Flat, on and everything like super that. Super easy yep. pace. They don't even put the mask on yet. Just okay. 20 minute warm up or 15 minute warm up. Then we put the mask, which, you know, is going to breed carbohydrate and fat, right? What I'm, what I'm burning, what my fuel sources are. So we're putting the mask on. It's a little backpack. So they, it's like a little tiny and, and it's Bluetooth. So Bluetooth to a laptop that's sitting next to me on a desk with, where the, where Roxanne was standing. Right. So she's a scientist at goo. So she, she's, we take uh, another four minutes to get, to make put it at 1% and like, let me warm up, make sure everything's reading. So it, it continues my warm up to basically 19 minutes. So this is just getting used to the mask for four minutes, making sure everything's reading. Are they getting data? All this kind of stuff. Oh, I should back up at the beginning. They took all my baseline stuff, um, blood glucose, ketones, and lactate. You got your finger okay. pricked a lot. Yeah, I got pricked a lot, dude. We had to move to my ear after yeah, a while. That's brutal. <laughs> so, yeah, it was brutal. So, and switch sides because we did five tests in two and a half days. Oh, two, two tests. Were your fingers all bruised and purple afterwards? 
Not too bad. Recovery, oh, yeah? dude. Ah, okay. good, yeah. good one. Good one. Okay. So let, let's keep um, going through the protocol. So you yeah. warm up, you got the mask on. Yep. And so the, the, the test starts. So every four minutes they take a, they, they do. Uh, okay. So let, every four minutes we bump up the grade. So we put it at, at five minute or a 12 minute miles, five miles an hour. Okay. And, and that's consistent through the whole test. We don't increase speed. We just increase, uh, um, grade. the percentage grade. Yep. Right. So we, the, the test initially starts at 3% for four minutes. And then we go six, nine, 12, 15, 18, 21 it's basically in the, in the, in the fasted test, which is the first day was fasted only a black cup of coffee, no food for 14 hours since the night before they wanted to see my baseline of where I could hand, where I could go, what my numbers look like and where I maxed out at basically where I tap out. Like when I tap out of the treadmill and I tapped out at three minutes into the 21%. Okay. So then every four minutes they took my lactate. Every other one, they took ketones and blood glucose. So every, so every eight minutes. So it's a, it's a, let me, I'm going to simplify it a little bit. It's a graded exercise test. Yep. You have a warm up period. Yep. You start out at 12 minute miles and you increase the grade 3% every four minutes until you get to a 21% grade. Yep. So it's three a three percent grade at a at a twelve minute mile for four minutes, six percent grade at a twelve minute mile for for four minutes, nine percent grade at a twelve minute mile for for four minutes, so on and so forth. And the whole time, you're taking measurements. I, I've got a mask on. You've got a mask <laughs> on, and you're and all that mask is doing is it is it's measuring the amount of air that you're taking in and the amount of carbon dioxide that you're blowing out. And since you yep. know the composition of the air around you, you can do all the equations to see how much oxygen you're utilizing and how much CO2 you're kicking out, like we were talking about earlier. But the point is, is you're doing all these and the exercise intensity is increasing. And, oh, what, yeah. and, and so, yeah, so that's what I want. That's why I want people to understand that haven't done a graded exercise test. How do you feel during each one of those stages? So it's like super chill and three, six, 9%. Cause I was, I mean, at the time it was last winter and I was, I'm pretty well trained at the time. So like running uphill was not that hard for me. So like, I felt pretty good until I got into the teens and it gets a little harder and starting to get, starting to get hard, you know, in the 12, 15%, you start getting into 18, you're, you're trying not to fall off the back of the treadmill. Yep. Okay. And 21 is all out. That's like, I'm kicking at the end of an 800 meter race. Like I'm, I'm when's, the last, when's the last time you did an 800 meter race? I high school. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was a high school 800 meter runner. Um, um, yeah, the pain cave, the last 300 meters. Um, so like just that last four minutes is like everything you can do to hold form, breathe, get it oxygen, like not fall off the back of the treadmill, not stumble. Like you're, you're literally doing it until you, you either have to quit and like straddle the treadmill and you're just like, <gasps> you know, or, or you try to finish the session. So it, it's, des it's designed. So the end of it is theoretically your max. Yeah, exactly. The the theoretically. And this yep. is this is slightly different than a standardized VO2 max test where because yeah, it wasn't an official VO2 max test, but correct. we did get VO2 max numbers. Yeah. And I want to I want to draw that distinction because in a typical yeah, VO2 max test, 
you run the test until literally the subject jumps off of the treadmill and straddles the treadmill. They are taking it to as far as they can go. Sometimes they actually do fall off the back of the treadmill and I have to catch them when I, when I, the, <laughs> when I, when I'm the one running the test and I've done that several times before, but this is, this is not designed to be a specific VO2 max test. It's designed nope. just to get you close so that it's you're cl- running really close to your VO2 really close and, and but more 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 so to run you through the range of intensities that's the real big point yeah that and I that's why we established the fasted baseline test because that's when we go to where I, we could have gone to 24 percent, right but i had to i tapped out at 21 at yep. three minutes in okay like perfect. i was like i can't go any farther perfect. right so that's that established like we're going to 21 in every test okay so you did this test and to throw out a really bad nutrition pun, you had five different flavors of this test. There were five yeah. different nutrition interventions that you used across the same test on different days. Yeah. Test in the morning. And, the, and, and, and also a side note, we, mm-hmm. we even kept, this is like goo wanted me to do this. We kept the exact same food. I ate the exact same yep. food for that three days. Yep. Good test like protocol. Same lunch, exact same macros, same amounts, yep. like same amount of coffee every day. Yep. So it was very consistent. Yep. So you're going through this test, this ramp protocol increases 3% every four minutes until Jeff pukes or falls off the back of the treadmill <laughs> exactly. or the test. Pukes in my mask. Exactly. I puke in the mask. We, I've had way. that happen too. Oh. Um, but that's, 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 that's a story for another day. It is gross. Um, so you've got this test, you've got the standardized test and you've got five different flavors of it. Why don't you explain each one of the trials very quickly? Cause we're going to talk a little yeah. bit more in and depth about two of them. The reason I, we did, we tested all these is because I'm sponsored by all three products. I'm Goose, my primary nutrition sponsor. And, and then I also am sponsored by HVMN, ketone esters and Vespa. So, um, so we wanted to, we wanted to kind of, I came there kind of with all of it with me just in case, like to see, we wanted to see what each of my, cause I use all three during a hundred. We wanted to see what that fueling each one did individually. So not in real world example where I'd be mixing them, but individually. So the first one was fasted. Like we said, the second one was in the afternoon, the first day. So I got about a six hour rest at five and a half, six hour rest and did the test all over again. We did carbohydrates and the carbohydrates, carbohydrates were specifically what I think that's goo. So it was goo roctane, a full serving. So 250 calories in a 20 ounce bottle. I sipped on before the, before the, before we even started, which I'd never do. So not real world, but we wanted to see what it did to my fat, right? Did it downregulate my fat burning? Right. Did it push my fat way low? Like what was it doing to me when I had a, a good amount? Right. So we had it before. And I think I took one gel in the middle. If I remember right, you, you have the yeah, I found that really odd. So you took the mask off, you took the gel, and then you put the mask back on? Yeah. Okay, all right. And and so right before, like right in about, I don't remember, maybe nine or 10, nine or 12%, somewhere in there, we I popped a gel. Before I got into the intense zones, so I, you know, throw down at, in the higher zones, like when you're, when that's ramping up. So the second half of the test is really hard. So... And I, I want to I, I clarify something for just one second, because the research protocol was actually half a serving of Roctane, Oh, they only did. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm so, glad you, I'm glad you're, you're looking at it. I'm talking. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. I, I okay. can't, I can't look and talk at the same time. So a half a serving yeah, is 125 calories 
in the two hours yeah, beforehand. 125 calories to start and then at one gel, right? Yep. And then you're having one gel. So I think it was in the middle, in the middle of the protocol. I think the timing is yep. inconsequential, but I think the amount, cause that's, I think that's more of the reason I wanted to bring that out is that's a little bit more of a real world situation for a non OFM type of athlete where yes. they take in some carbohydrate before, the, before a race. And yeah, then totally. sip on it on the way to the start line. Yeah. And then 20, 30 minutes into the race, they take a gel. I think that's a, yep. that's a yep. relatively applicable situation for a lot of athletes. So keep going. Yep. So we got these two trials first, the so that's fasted one. one and the carbohydrate one. Carbohydrate one was day one. Day two was the morning test was ketone esters only, which they don't recommend as a disclaimer. It knocks your blood sugar low, like hypoglycemic low. Right. So but because I'm a high fat, uh, fat adapt athlete, my body, my bloody, my body's used to being, you know, can have my blood sugar pretty low and it's not bonk. So th- they were okay with us doing ketones by themselves. Like we, we, we said, okay, I think you can handle this, but if you look, you look at my, bl- <laughs> my, my blood sugar was low before the start. Yeah, they have the AED <laughs> like on standby. Yeah. What's yeah. that? Yeah, the AED yeah. on standby for you. So <laughs> I think I got down to 57 blood sugar. Yeah, um, yeah. Before the race or before the uh, test. And it's, so, a, it's a product called HVMN. And yep. In North America, do they say HVMN or is it human? They, they're doing it both ways. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Anyway. I think originally they thought human would be really like catchy, but everyone calls it HVMN. So that's what... So I just call it HVMN. Yeah, that's what I call it. So it's a, ke- it's a ketone ester drink. It's commercially available. It's one of, I think, two ketone ester drinks that you can get commercially right now. To paint the the, the picture for the athletes, it's, it's not, it's starting to become more recognized as a source of, uh, yep. of fueling or as a nutritional strategy. I'll put it that way, as a nutritional strategy. And a lot of that was, here's your second terrible nutrition pun. A lot of that has been fueled by some of the use that the Tour de France riders were using in yeah, last year. Yeah, every team years. has bought, is using it, except the French team. Yeah, well, it's, there's another story there. But I, <laughs> I, so anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a nutritional intervention for those of you that are not familiar with what a ketone ester is. We're not going to talk about that trial. No, it's an exogenous ketone, yeah. basically. Okay. But it really push. you were seeing it push a bump your ketones, your blood ketones pretty high, yeah. okay. uh, like a point. You know, or so. Yep. Okay. So uh, that was trial it. number three, ketone that only. That was trial number three. And then in the afternoon session, we did the way they recommend it is ketones and carbs together. Um, but you you have the paper in front of me. I can't remember exactly. Did we drink carbs before or we just, I don't remember how exactly we did it. Uh, yeah. So the ketone it's plus, car- I know, the ketone, ketone plus carbs is one serving ketone ester one hour before plus half a serving of Roctane 30 minutes before, and then one gel at the third stage. Yep. There you go. So you're doing ketone esters plus carbohydrate before, and then carbohydrate yep. during. Which is a little more like the way you're supposed to use that product. Yeah. yeah. Is that, in, is that in, fair? Actually, because I know you use this at Western States. Is that fairly analogous to how you were using it at Western States? Yeah. I, I, take, I took uh, ketone esters at three times. So 30, 55, 80. That's like a hundred dollar intervention, right? Cause yeah. they're like $30 a serving. They're like 30 some dollars a serving, dude. It's a hundred dollar yeah. intervention. Oh, yeah. They'll get that I mean, price point down. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I, I wanted to paint that picture because once again, I think that that that's actually a real world scenario for the use of ketone esters. Okay. So that, that was the next trial. And then 
the and then the fourth- last day, the last morning, the third day, we just did a morning test before I flew out. Um, that was uh, fasted with only Vespa 30 minutes before. Yep. Okay. So another product done just another completely in is- isolation. Which is how I would use that product. I only would take Vespa 30 minutes before 100, and my first carbohydrates wouldn't come in for an hour until after running an hour. Okay. So that would be realistic for you for one hour of a 100-mile run. Yep. And then I would start dripping okay. carbohydrate. Okay. All right. I think that's, and this that's, is where it comes back to where we want to use this meta, this metabolic cart, right? The backpack in a real world setting at altitude on a trail yeah. where I do a circuit of climbing for three hours and keep testing at every lap. Yeah. They, they've tried to do that type of study at Western States before with the portable uh, metabolic carts. And once you, it's enter, tricky because once you introduce three or four of them and you got 10 or 15 subjects, you just end up losing a lot of data. It's, it's not, it, they're, they're, don't get me wrong. They're reliable, but it's just when you're swapping them in and out and you got different people and it's in the real world or there's dust and you know, yeah. the environment like we all compete in, um, it's just way more complicated. Okay. Yep. So let's yep. get back to it. We're only going to focus on a couple of those trials because yep. discussing all five of them is another five podcasts. <laughs> totally, dude. <laughs> which, which we can do. There's enough demand for it. I don't mind doing it. But let, let's take, what are Jeff Browning's takeaways from this? What are my takeaways? Because it's you. It's you doing the test. Yep. So what are your takeaways from it? Because you're going to use this test as an athlete and as a coach in some form or fashion, take the information from it and say, this is what I, this is what I'm going to use it for. Um, well, I think w- some of the things that re- I really got away from it was that, um, all pro all the products kind of do what they say they're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. That's a really right? good one. <laughs> that, I mean, that's, that was the big takeaway was like, <laughs> I wanted to know I'm using all three of these products. Are they doing what they say they'll do? And they actually do. There was no, like, you know, You know, I was able to, I was able to have pop in the, in the carbohydrate test. I was able to have pop in the ketone and carb test. Right. Um, you know, like I, I felt really strong in those. These are the two tests we want to talk about ketones and carbs together. Right. And then keto and carbs by themselves. And, and I felt really good. But if you look at the carb test, right, it really, really downregulated my fat burning, like my fat burning, like tanked. And it's the orientation. I mean, the orientation is like your, or I just love this from a sociology perspective. Your orientation on this is your fat regulation was downregulated. Another orientation could be your carbohydrate metabolism was upregulated. Yes. And vice versa in the other trials. And this is where the flex fuel idea, and this is where the real world scenario for me is really intriguing yeah. is because I, I would keep get my fat burning really, really kicked up in the beginning of the race. And then I'd start trickling carbohydrates in a very small amounts, never overwhelming myself. So I would not getting an insulin response. I'm not getting a blood sugar spike. Like I did during taking 125 calories of goo before the, before I started the test, right? That would, isn't a real world scenario for me personally. What, so what is uh, the real, like, what's the trickle in? Mine's, mine's literally 125 calories per hour. Like, so sipping. Uh-huh. 
So it's very small. Every sip's probably one or two grams of carbohydrates. But weren't you, weren't you saying earlier you were targeting more closer to 200 calories an hour? for Western I am. I'm getting 125 calories from goo roctane, uh-huh. right? And then I might have a little bit of fruit at the aid station table, like a third of a banana or a little bit of juice from an orange wedge, a couple of orange wedges. Um, and then I might take a strategic gel every once in a while. Like, you know, I'm, I'll pop, like I might eat in early miles. I'll eat like half a gel. So I don't get as much. And then I'll wait five or 10 minutes and eat the rest of the gel just to not have that insulin spike. So I'm still trickling in the carbohydrate. Right. That's so my thinking is, oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, one of the thinkings behind that is just to give you a side, there's a reason for it, um, is that what we see a lot is like, if you have about five grams of carbohydrates, it raises your blood sugar, right? In most people. So somewhere in ballpark, let's just ballpark. We're throwing a ballpark out there, right? This isn't hard science, but, but it's a ballpark. So like five grams of carbohydrates is going to give you a blood sugar spike, which means your insulin has got to kick out. Your pancreas got to kick out insulin to get your blood sugar back down. Okay. To get you back to the teaspoon of glucose in your bloodstream. Okay. To homeostasis. So that's about what we, so what we're looking at is sipping carbohydrate instead of taking a whole gel at one time, unless your heart rate's going to creep up, right? Where you can have good glucose uptake and really pop, have that pop. So like for me, if I'm coming into a big climb at Western States, I'm going to pop a gel at the base of the climb. It's strategic because I know my heart rate's going to creep up on that climb. Or if I'm going to pass someone in the second half and I'm coming up on a guy who's, I got to pass and I'm going to have to surge for 15, 20 minutes, then I'm going to pop a whole gel. Yeah. That, that, that nibble, nibble, sip, sip recommendation is the, that's the, that's the, the, yeah, that's the colloquial way to, uh, to describe it. And there's a lot of, you know, I, I think that that's a completely reasonable way to go about it. What I was trying to say earlier is, is that's why I like the chewable products more than the gel products is because you're not limited to a hundred calorie shot of something all at once and you can meter it out. And especially for smaller athletes. Absolutely. Not that, 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 let me, let me qualify that because some, some physiologist will yell at me on Twitter if I don't. But body size, body, body size doesn't. So body, the, your body's ability to absorb carbohydrate is relatively independent of body size. And that's a lot of people don't realize that that's actually, that that's actually the case. They think trying to use their common sense that a 200 pound person can absorb carbohydrates more quickly than a hundred pound person. But what they see when they actually study this is it's relatively independent of that status and probably has more to do with their actual nutrition program and how much they, and how much they've practiced it. But the, my point with that is, is that a lot of people just because for whatever other reason, not body size, they just can't handle hundred calories or 25 grams of carbohydrates all at once, or it's, or it kind of adversely affects them. So anyway, that's just more of an aside. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's it. And another side note of what you just said about their nutrition is that's one other thing I took away from this is what I eat and what the nutrition I have affects what my fueling is, what I'm going to burn. And I always put that in the no shit category. Like if you consume carbohydrates, you're going to burn carbohydrates. If you don't consume, you, burn, you eat fat, you're going to burn fat. Yeah, or, now, the, 
I think the key here out of all this is to, to realize that like this still isn't just because that we did this test. It doesn't it just says shows what my body does with each fueling source individually, but it doesn't show it as a synergy of when you use it in a race like I would. So that's what I'm most intrigued about is to find out what like am I still burning at a super high rate of fat right during the race or during a race while I'm dripping carbohydrates. Yeah. So the take home message is we could, we could we like, know. we can kind of, yeah, we can kind of move this along is the, the, the products are working as they stated are going to work. If you take yeah. in something, you're going to burn whatever that is that you took. And if you don't take in anything, you're going to burn fat because you don't have any carbohydrate on board. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And- but I, I think the real Jeff Browning take home, uh, take home message from this is just what you said. What does this mean in the real world? When you start combining all of this stuff yeah. into a real race situation, how does that actually... After you're, aff- t- after you're depleted. After you're depleted, you've been running for four hours, you know, you've gone through Robinson Flat, you've, you know, done this, done that. What does that mean at that? And we might not ever have crystal clear answers to that, but we can start to kind of inch them forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. and I think the other thing that I thought... Um, a side note that was interesting out of this is how much, and I don't want to get in the weeds because this is a separate, this could be a separate podcast, but the, the fifth test on Vespa was very interesting to me just because it really kicked fat burning up over two grams a minute. Yeah, yeah. And that's off the charts. Yeah, that, that's high. I actually looked back at our, our, at our data to see if I could find any and I could find some athletes that were like at 1.6 or 1.8. And once again, these are not fat adapted athletes. These are just right. endurance athletes. Uh, yeah, but I would I would agree with you that two grams a minute is high. Now, you might make the comparison to the yeah, it was two faster two grams a minute. You might make make the comparison to the to 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 the now famous faster study, but the conditions are different. I want to I want to couch the 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 conversation with the the conditions in the in the faster study. What they were exercising at a sub maximal level. In your yeah, case, yeah, we weren't taking an intense test. It wasn't an intense test. In your case, at the goo lab, where you're seeing 2.2 grams of, of fat per 2.2 grams of fat being metabolized per minute, that is not in a steady state condition. That's an, an incremental ramp test, which is wildly different. Yeah, and it w- which was really an inter- some interesting data that came out of that. Yeah. I think that that was really eye opening for me personally as an athlete using three different products. Going, whoa, this one is really interesting product to me. Yeah. Like, what the heck? I think so, when I, I think when I go back and I listen to this podcast, I'm going to have this list of like five different ones to take up next because we've went to that like five times okay i would be like we're gonna move this on so the the interesting part of that it's your podcast where are we going next well i think we both want to talk about who are not candidates for this okay good so you you're the practitioner in this area right like you have people come to you and say jeff i want to be a fat burning machine do they actually say that Uh, I probably had a couple say that. <laughs> okay. no, most people, you no, know, most people just say, you know, I'm interested in this like fat adaptation thing or OFM, like, and okay. and saying, you know, I'm I'm, I'm interested in exploring it. God, you know, pe- that's when, when I hear the celebrity influencers say that, I just want to puke. But <laughs> that's just me. So, but you have people come to you and say, hey, listen, I want to, I want to, yeah. I want to become, I want to do this, I want to learn more about OFM, and at some way. 
you're, I appreciate what you do as a practitioner. In some way, you got to look at that situation and go, okay, this is right for this person or no, nah, this isn't right for that person. And we have to do that all the time as coaches with interventions. Well, I, I, yeah. And one of the first ones is not great for is someone with an eating disorder yep. because okay. they immediately like they get so caught up in the numbers and like where we talked about being like carb phobic and all those kind of things. They, it just gives them something else to fuel that problem. Yep. Yep. And totally so I agree think, with you. Because then they're not going to eat enough. Because one of the things I see early on when you're trying to do that, when we talk about phase one, is people don't shift enough eating enough fat and protein. They just restrict carb calories big time. And then they, they feel like crap. And and so one is like, it this, this isn't like, you're just restricting calories big time. And you don't want to do that because you're exercising. Yeah. So, so like, that's, that's number one. Um, um, most people like uh, a lot of the big candidates for me personally, and this is where I, I get a lot of like, um, satisfaction in coaching these people. It's very rewarding is people who come to me that are like 35, 40, 45, 50. And they come to me and go, you know, they're middle of the back of the Packers. They're having GI, major GI stress. They're having, you know, they've gained 35, 40 pounds in their when they're older and they, they, or they can't quite get down to their, the race weight they used to get down to when they're younger. And, and they're just like, they're struggling with like body weight. They're struggling with, with, uh, GI stress. Those are my main people that come to me. Like those are candidates. Like I've had tons of success stories where it's like, Oh, they lost 40 pounds, you know, or, and, and, and I would say that a majority of the the people that come to me are men. So, I want to throw that out there because women, I know women don't get the full representation here. And when it comes to fat adaptation and OFM, it's different. They need more carbohydrate than a man does. They easily go into ketosis easier or faster. And so they're better natural fat burners than, than guys in the most, just because of, I think because of childbirth and when you're nursing, you go into ketosis mostly. And so they, their bodies know how to shift there. And guys, if they've been eating a high carb diet their whole life, don't necessarily, but women, if, especially if they've had kids, their body's going to know that condition and they need more carbohydrates to regulate hormones, to make sure that, that they're healthy. I, I, agree, I agree with you that women are probably not the best, not probably, they are not the best candidates to undergo something like this. And in particular, the three-step process that you use. But have you, have you ever actually had any women that go through this? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've had multiple women and okay. I've had it. So one of the things that I would say is that the ones I've had that are successful at it are really good at using carbohydrate like we talked about. So they don't go as low as guys and then they go a little higher so they still are relatively low carb overall, right? Compared yeah. to the, like what we're talking about, the normal population, we're yeah. still, but they're more like their maintenance diet during training is a hundred to 250, uh, 250, uh, calories of carbohydrates a day. Yep. Okay. Right. So, so people with eating disorders, or I'm sorry, grams, sorry, hundred yeah, yeah, yeah. grams to 250. We've been going back and forth. Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. We're one for one on that switch, <laughs> which is fair, <laughs> which is fair. Yeah. Um, okay. So you've got two categories, people with eating disorders, totally agree with you, not candidates for this women. You definitely need to do it differently. If you are thinking about doing it, I think they're just more susceptible to having a relative energy deficit in something yep. in a, and there uh, are warning signs for them too. And if they're feeling lethargic all the time and really chronically tired if they're especially if they're having inconsistent um periods and stuff like that they need to be like 
they really need to be focused on like, is everything regulating correctly? Do I feel good? Yep. You know, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. Who, who, okay. Yeah. So who else wouldn't be a candidate? Like who else would you say, man, we need to do something different with you. I mean, I, I, I thought about this last night a lot because you gave me that question before. Yeah. And I just, there's no, I mean, I think there's a, if people are willing to try it, I don't think it's, I don't think there's any really bad candidates necessarily. I think the key is like not getting chronically keto, chronically, chronically caught up in like being carb phobic. Like the key is like shifting at some point to like, after that four weeks is like, getting in that zone of like what I call what I tell everyone, if I'm telling someone just on the street and then I explain it to them real quick, I'm like, well, basically we move to like a primal blueprint diet. So go read the book primal blueprint and you'll get it. It's like, you know, it's, it's relatively low carb, but it's very nutrient dense and it's prioritizing nutrient dense foods and nutrient dense kind of, uh, carbohydrates like fruits, potatoes, right? Staying away from anti-nutrient type foods like grain-based foods or limiting them um, because they have anti-nutrients in like phytic acid and lectins. But it right? seems That's like- what you're getting in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've, you've actually alluded to this concept a, a couple of times just in the last five minutes that at times it does go awry. And what I'm trying to, what I'm seeming to get from you is that it goes awry when people take it to more of an extreme- extreme exactly <laughs> this is what the, this is where like the the chronic camps <laughs> you know chronic keto chronic carnivore right like you need to ebb and flow and use all of them to your advantage right there's times to be a little higher carb there's times to be you know low carb there there's time to be zero carb you know like just here and there. I like to look at it as like a meal based. Like sometimes I have a carnivore meal. Sometimes I have a keto meal. Sometimes I have a full carb meal only. Is, like I was about to say, carbs. is there a time where you're a hundred percent carbs? I, I mean, in meals. Yes. Yeah. Like post-workout, like if I go do an intent, like today, if, if we get done with this podcast at time, <laughs> I'm supposed to go to mountain project and do a really intense 50 minute strength workout. After that, I'm going to have all carbs like after that workout, but like 20 or 30 grams. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, not probably, a lot. Well, that's no, a banana. No more than that, Cause I'll have a full piece of fruit. That's 25, about okay. 25 grams of okay. carbohydrates. Then I'll have yogurt. That's going to be another 25 grams. So I'll probably have 50 to okay. 70 grams of carbohydrates in one setting right after that workout. Okay. All right, cool. If that makes sense. Does that? Yeah, 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 mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. I, we're timing it or when, when uptake is good. That's when you can utilize it and your body's going to say, Hey, thank you. I need to top off glycogen. Boom. Done. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you that the zealots in the nutrition space do whatever strategy that they're purporting a disservice, whether it's the carnivore zealots or the low carb zealots or the now, keto zealots or the I vegan agree. zealots or absolutely even All the high carb zealots. Like you need to, you need to modify your nutrition intake based on a number of different parameters. The intensity being one of them, lifestyle being another one, your goals and things like that. It's when you get to this diet is the best for everybody for whatever. Now I would say if you're trying to, I would say there is a caveat. You can go, you're going to have to go a little chronically lower carb if you're managing a metabolic issue. 
right? So if you already have something going on, if you have a healthy metabolism, you can handle a decent amount of carbs. But if you're dealing with something like I've had people that have been dealing with like skin rashes or like kind of candida type issues where they break out when they have too many carbs and their rash breaks out. But when they back off on carbs, it goes away and goes into remission, right? I've had people who have uh, rheumatoid arthritis that have had good luck with like a keto or a low carb diet and putting that, like those symptoms go away when they're, but if they go, if they stray too far or have too many carbs in one setting, their symptoms come back. Yeah, so, that's, a, that's a big rabbit hole to go down, though, like all yeah, the is. different. I, I just wanted to throw it out there that sure. there is a category okay. that people can kind of explore that diet to help manage those issues. Yep. Um, I've seen really good success rates in that stuff you know, in those kind of things like type two diabetes, even my, my, my father is type two diabetic. And I saw really good numbers for one week. We just put him on a, just as an experiment, he's my own dad. I can do whatever one I want with him. And he's in a wheelchair. He's had a heart attack, a stroke. He can, he's used, he's lost use of the right side. He's on all kinds of medication. He's in long-term care now, you know, so, but, but I, when he, before he went into long-term care, I, I came home for a week to help them like get, get hand right after it happened after the stroke. And he was just super lethargic. He takes his blood sugar like three times a day, you know, and like he has to monitor it. He goes to kidney dialysis three times a week. They take his weight, his everything, you know, they take all his numbers. And what I saw was improvement, stabilization and improvement the entire week. I was there for seven days. He continued to his credit. He continued it for about another month and he lost a ton of weight he like his blood sugar was completely back to normal on on that kind of like a paleo diet not like primal blueprint i didn't take him super low carb i didn't go keto i didn't i i was scared to do keto like i didn't want to take him super low cuz he's type 2 but i did take him to like more of like 100 sure. grams a day yeah and he was he timed it you know like like it was it, it was beautiful one day his blood sugar tanked a little too much you know down in the 70s he was kind of looking like I was off doing stuff in a room and I can't, I, I kind of forgot about it for a while and like went, came back in and was like, he was kind of like dozing off. I'm like, dad, you hungry? And I said, like, I think so. I gave him a half an orange and his blood sugar is back up to 95 and, and he was fine. Yeah. But, and he's back talking and, and that's so awesome. That's awesome. It, it was cool. Like just N equals one experiment yeah, yeah. on my own dad who, who is very metabolically compromised. Yep. Yeah. And you see, I mean, a lot of the, to, to, to kind of wrap this up in a nice little bow, a lot of the, a lot of the low carb performance based rationales come from diabetes research, overweight research, metabolic syndrome, syndrome research, and things like that. And that's not indifferent from the way a lot of other performance things come into the fold within sport, where it's very specialized medical intervention. And we're, we're looking at that medical intervention saying, oh, okay, how can we take a, a shade of this or a flavor of this or a slice of this and apply it to endurance athletes to strength athletes to team athletes so that they can they, they can perform better that run of show has been going on ad nauseum for for years and this is a great example of that i think that's what we talked about bullock and finney studies earlier they started out studying low carb diets and how it helped like with metabolic syndromes right. and like as a therapeutic benefit and then eventually said wow well they started pl- tinkering with it with athletes and then they saw benefits there and they just follow the data. Yep. So I think that's, it's an interesting time, man. I, that's for sure. Like 
we're in this time where we don't, like you said, we don't have all the data. We, we have theories and we have, we have concepts and right. But we see people benefiting from it and people really doing well on it sometimes. And some people failing on it, you know, there's, there's goods and bads. And I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, if people are willing to kind of give it a try, I think most people are a fairly good candidate. If they're willing to take the time, you have to learn though. You have to take the time to read. You have to take the time to study a little bit. It's not an easy path. I don't ever think we're going to, you know, we talk about the five athletes we've mentioned. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, uh, that, that's going to be it, man. It's the team of five. We're the, we're the, uh, Anyway, but wait but a minute. Think, hold on. Hold on. Why? So why does this happen? This is a sociology thing. But so when somebody like yourself or Zach, yep. Zach we'll use Zach because he, yep. he's a great example right now. Currently, he goes and he breaks the 100 mile world record. Yeah. Phenomenal for performance. Phenomenal. Yep. Hands down. Great performance. Anybody can look at it and go. Yep, that's that's great. He is lauded in around the world. All different types of press athletes. Oh, there's this you know, fat adapted runner that broke the hundred mile world record and blah, blah, blah. And that becomes a point of conversation amongst everybody. When yeah. Jim Walmsley breaks the, the course record at Western States, nobody said, oh, he was fueled on carbohydrates. Right. It's so, true. So I think that, that sometimes like the anomalies, uh, you know could, what I think as a fat yeah. adapted athlete, though? Yeah, yeah. what could he do fat adapted? <laughs> <laughs> of course oh, you think like that like no gi stress dude, no like dude. I would lo like i would love to know like uh, you know someone like kipchoge you know or oh something like that like well i'll tell you kipchoge a hundred percent would be worse a hundred percent for the well, event that he know. does for the event that he does if he's if he is metabolizing more fat for a two hour marathon or two hour marathon type of intensity, he's going to get worse because the oxygen cost is greater. Cause the oxygen per cost period, so period. That's the end of story there. And that's, that's not even research. That's just human metabolism. You're about 8% less economical using fat as a fuel source versus carbohydrate. Meaning you're using 8% more oxygen utilizing fat as a fuel source versus carbohydrate. And at that intensity, oxygen is at a premium. Just, okay. I got a question. What, 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 what percent of VO2 max is he at in that? In over that 90, level? over I, 90. Yeah. So he, but yeah, he has to have carbohydrate, but if he could, if he could shift that fat burning to say like where he was like burning mostly say 85% fat at 82% of his VO2 max or 85% of his VO2 max, there might be enough shift where when he was using strategic dripping carbohydrates during the race that he might be able to like push it even higher, like harder. So I, I'm not saying, but I'm saying like for you to say, I guarantee as we know, things can come to light down the road that could like flip that on its head. I'll, and, I'll, I'll stick by that. I'll stick by the guarantee. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, like I'll hundred percent. I'll hundred percent. I like how sure you are of yourself. Well, no, it's not that. It's just that the metabolism doesn't work out. I mean, it, well, but I mean, even like, you know, we talk about the Vespa number that I had like 2.2 .2 grams a minute, five years ago, we would have said, that's not, I, I've got guys in, you know, people like professors in physiology labs at USU going, we, we don't even, we've never seen these number shifts in our athletes when we're testing like cross country runners and track runners. But that's like, not the same as marathon performance. 
marathon, no, right. per, marathon right. performance, oxygen is at a premium. Yes, and when oxygen right. is especially at, at that level, at that, at that level for our yes. marathon are different story, but two yeah, hour totally. marathon where oxygen is as a premium, the strategy has to be, what are the fuel sources that are going to take the least amount of oxygen and that fuel okay. source is carbohydrate. Right. Yeah. I agree with you there. I think I think I could I can I'll concede that point. <laughs> okay. Well, well. <laughs> but I always I'm like like I said, flexitarian. Like I'm not, I just don't I like to see some of these athletes who are high carb athletes that are really at the top of their game right now. I'd like to see what I could do with them if I could if they would do that adaptation a little bit and just see if they if they lost their performance. Right. But there's and a cohort for that. There's a cohort for that, Jeff. They did that in the supernova study out of Louis Burke's lab at, at the Australian Institute for Sport, where they took elite level race walkers. And yes, this is an, exactly this is this about. is analogous. This is this has this is somewhat analogous to ultramarathon running because the intensity is actually pretty close. They took elite ultra they took elite race walkers and put them all on a low carb diet and measured their performance which is what matters at the Olympic level, gold, silver, bronze. But didn't one the, of the guys, one of the race walkers did like had an amazing performance it, it, after it, he brought it, carbohydrates back. Right. But they, but what they found was, is it impaired exercise economy, which is a no yep. duh statement. Anytime you increase fat oxidation, you're going to impair exercise economy. And that was detrimental to their performance. So not only, but, not only, not only was their performance reduced, but their training adaptations were reduced as well. But I would argue that they didn't get back to, they, they didn't do, they didn't get to OFM protocol. They did, they did it in two different ways. They did, they did low carb keto, and then they did high carb, right? And then they're, then they all felt better. Well, of course, the carbohydrates, all your high end. So it's all your no, high end performance. No, it was a low carb verse group versus a high carb group. And they measured the but, performance. But one of the, I, I was listening to a podcast where they were breaking that one down. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the athletes had like a, a, a great, a great performance when he brought some carbohydrates back right after the, the low carb phase, which is indicative of like all of a sudden he brought back the carbs to give him the pop, but he still was burning fat at a high rate, right? It doesn't just shut fat burning off. So he was burning fat at a higher rate. Like we're talking about, like I, my full, my theory is during a race that I'm still burning at a, without being able to take the metabolic cart with me during Western States or something. I'm I'm not, you know, that's why I want to do this outside test we talked about, but that he did that phase and then he brought back strategic carbs right before the event and he felt great. And he, and he, I think he might even PR'd, but, but the point here is that there's, there's, there's something in the middle there. It's not just keto camp. It's not just carb camp. OFM is the combination of the two. So you have flex fuel. So you are still burning fat at a higher rate, but I don't want to be hundred percent fat burner. I just want to be a high fat burner, but still my body knows how to use carbohydrates really, really efficiently too. Well, you can, you can bring up the one, the one person and I, yeah, I, yeah. I I'm not going to profess that I didn't look at the, actually I did look at the individual data. I can't remember how much of an outlier that one person was, but, but of course but, they didn't perform it, well, on the low carb. Well, I don't know. I mean, once again, these are Olympic level race walkers and you could actually, from a performance perspective, you can actually take issue with that study because you're messing with their careers. 
at that yeah, point. Yeah, totally. Right? When you're yeah. doing a nutritional inter- intervention that compromises the com- the career of an elite level uh, athlete. Especially at that level, they're getting paid. Yeah. And so, but but anyway, the, so even the fact that you would consider a study like that, that had those those performance detriment, I think is, uh, I, I think is incredible. But what that points out, that whole dialogue points out, is there's still an individual nature to it. Absolutely. That's incredibly difficult to weed out with one single. It really with is. One sing- I think that's a takeaway from this podcast is it's not, it's not a one size fits all. And it's also not something that you can just kind of go A, B, C, done. Right. Like, correct. I'm still learning. I've been doing it four years. I'm still tinkering. I've taken my carbs higher. I've taken them lower. I've taken them chronic low for a while. I've taken them chronic higher for a while, like in and out both ways, like really ebbed and flowed. And I'm still tinkering. Like it's been four years. Right. But the takeaway here is that you, there isn't just a, a recipe. I agree with that. Follow. Exactly. hundred percent. agree with that. All right, you got to go work out, man. <laughs> we're, two, we're over two hours into this. You get the record for the longest podcast to date of our my like data set of twelve right now. <laughs> so uh, I would expect no less from you, Jeff. Am I lucky thirteen? Uh, I, I can't. With the order, the the release date is different than the record date, and I always get got them it. jumbled up in my mind. But it's going to be like twelve or. 11 or something like that. Uh, if you want lucky 13, I can, I can hold back the production. If you really want that. <laughs> I don't care, dude. Okay. I really don't care. Um, you get the last word though. I really appreciate, oh. I really appreciate you coming on Jeff, first and foremost. No, I mean, I think the, I just want to thank you for having me on, man. I, I mean, you and I, like, I love following you on Twitter, man. I love your, I love your blog posts. I follow them. I read them. Um, we have a lot in common more than we probably have, you know, not in common. Um, <laughs> and, uh, from a, from just, I, I just really appreciate you in our space and being a thought leader in this and pushing it and, and being willing to call people on stuff and, I mean, we need that kind of rapport, but you do it in a, in a respectful manner. You and I have always, we've had a lot of little Twitter conversations. Um, and, and we've always had, it's always respectful. And I appreciate that about you. And, um, and I appreciate that you're doing this podcast. It's pretty sweet, dude. All right. We'll leave it at that, man. Cause the feeling is a hundred percent mutual. We might not see eye to eye or our plates might not be eye to eye. Um, oh, I got one last thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you do have the a distinction of being one of the few people to ever pace Bronco Billy. Ooh. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you're only in a handful, less than it, less than a handful. Wow. That's an um, honor. What year was yeah, that? I mean, out of 3900s, I've only had a pacer, I think four or five times. Um, and you're one of them in Hard Rock 07. Yeah. That was a long and time I was ago. was hurting, dude. Woo. <laughs> yeah, that was that fun, was man. Well, the and the 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 feeling is the the feeling is mutual because that is one of the experience that kind of propelled my interest in ultra running. I was really new to the game. Somehow, yeah. So I'd only done, I think, one fifty miler before that. I'd never been out on the hard rock course. And somehow or another, a mutual friend of ours, Garrett Grobbins, convinced you to take on this newbie pacer to go over Virginia's pass of all places yeah, the <laughs> on the hard, of hard rock course when I had no business 
like being of any source of advice, inspiration, or anything. Was that your first there. time on the hard rock <laughs> course? My first time out on the hard rock course. Yeah. Yeah, dude. <laughs> me too. We went over Virginia. We we were Virgin Virgin Virginia's past oh my God. runners. Yeah. Woo. Well, we could do we could do a whole nother podcast on our hard rock experiences. <laughs> That's another yeah, thing all storm in American oh Basin. Yeah. Ooh, dude. I thought I was gonna die. Yeah. Well, yeah. That was scary. All right, man, we're going to let you go. Go hit the weight room. Tell those guys I said hi out there. I miss them. I should make a trip out there sometime. If I do, we'll get synced up for dinner or something like that. Sound good? Yeah, let's do it. All right, cool, man. Thanks, thanks, Coop. Yep, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Yep, giddy up. Okay, trail runners, what did you think? Did you make it through that whole episode? If you did, thank you very much. We set a record for the Coopcast in the short history of this podcast, two and a half hours. I did not really expect that to go that long, but you know, sometimes you just gotta let it keep, keep it going, people. Uh, really appreciate Jeff coming on the podcast. He certainly didn't have to, but he really did uh, kind of accept the invitation with uh, open arms, knowing that he was gonna get, you know, a reasonable level of, of intellectual criticism, kind of come back at some of his arguments. And I think I provided some of that. Uh, maybe at times you thought that, you know, we we just kind of rambled on too long. You can tell me what you think. You can hit me up on social media at Jason Coop is Twitter and at Jason Coop on Instagram. I appreciate you guys listening. If you can bear with me for just a couple more minutes, I do have a couple of hot takes related to this particular podcast. First off, I'd be remiss to mention that in any nutrition scenario, if you're getting sold a nutrition program based on a lot of the buzzword bingo that goes around, just run the opposite way. If this diet is paleo or primal or cleansing or ancestral or any of these things that are really not related to anything relevant, it's just marketing. Run away. It's not worth your time. Look for, look for something better to design your nutrition to design your nutrition program around. Honestly, this thing, this uh, some of the stuff in the in the nutrition space has really gone on way too far and way too long. The second thing that I'll mention is uh, it's a little bit of an extension of something that we mentioned in the podcast. There is a scientific consensus on this, and the International Society of Sports Nutrition, their position stand on nutritional considerations for single-stage ultramarathon training and racing, states that ultra runners would be best served to have 60% of their calories come from carbohydrate, 15% from protein, and 25% from fat to support their day-to-day training activities. And this is this consensus statement is made up of a group of individuals, not just one or two or three, but many individuals who spend their entire lives. They're actually actual nutrition experts. And Jeff and I, we're not nutrition experts. We, we have to play in the space because we're both coaches. But the people that come up with these types of, consens- of consensus sta- statements are, in fact, domain experts. And when you have a strategy that flies in the face of all of those experts coming together and to create one type of consensus around this one area, which is macronutrient composition, you better have a pretty darn good reason at why your strategy flies in the face of that. And to be honest with you, I don't think a lot of these low-carb strategies have a good rationale uh, behind them uh, in order to fly in the face of what the scientific consensus is. Yes, there are always stories of athletes that have had success on this diet or that diet or another diet. 
But when you really break down why those things are happening, the mechanisms, quite frankly, fall apart. And my personal opinion on this is it all really just comes down to different variations of caloric restriction. Low-carb diet is just a way to restrict the total amount of calories via one macronutrient, carbohydrate in this, uh, in this case. And many athletes, they just lose weight and they see a performance benefit because of that. And while there might be other things going on, that's one of the main ones. And I'm not saying that this is a good way, a low-carbohydrate diet is a good way to lose weight, but as a way to lose weight, as a way to restrict calories, sure, go ahead and go for it. If that's, if that's, if that's kind of what floats your boat and you can support training, who am I to disagree with that? Uh, it's a whole nother podcast as to whether that's the best way to restrict calories and, and drop a few pounds. But we will save that for another time and we have gone on long enough. Really appreciate you guys listening. Like I said, it was a long one. Hopefully you guys had a long run queued up for the day. Um, if you could spare a moment, go give this podcast a rating on iTunes. It really helps us out a lot. Really appreciate the feedback that I've gotten so far on this podcast. And as always, you guys, we will see you out on the trails. Mm-hmm.